fellow Astorians. A simple pair of sentences from Young Griff in the Lost Lord chapter will help get us started today. Flowers is a bastard name. You're from the Reach. And that explains it. We'd like to thank you for coming today. We appreciate... Just kidding. (laughs) He's speaking of Sir Franklin Flowers, who has a profile in this episode. But the entire Aegon slash Young Griff plot is directly and or thematically related to the Blackfire stories, which is a story about bastards. And the central supporters of the Blackfire cause was the Reach, even though Damon Blackfire himself was not from the Reach. A lot of his key supporters were, such as Fireball... And though Franklin, uh, and though rather Jon Snow is not a flowers, bastardy is a central aspect for the plot of one of the most important characters. I mean, Jon is one of the most important characters. And so this is true, even if it turns out he's technically not a bastard at all. Like if he turns out to be Jon Targaryen or whatever he goes by later, whatever his name actually is, even, even if it turns out to be Jon Snow, regardless... He's been treated like a bastard. And that's what really matters to us here. As much as we're honing in on people whose name is Flowers, we're really about the treatment of bastards, specifically Reach bastards and specific figures from the Reach. You know, I think that gives a good counterpoint to even the story we'll get into later of Glendon Flowers, Glendon Mm. Ball, someone who claims to not be a bastard, but he's still treated like a bastard. So it doesn't matter whether he is or not. He is one. That's true. That's a good point. Yeah, you're right. Even if there's a lot of cases like that where the treatment comes with the title, even if the title isn't deserved. And we all know the title's not deserved anyway. The way bastards get treated in Westeros is unfair, regardless of their names. One thing interesting too here, it's a large subject. I mean, given the sheer number of characters whose parents were unmarried, and given how ancient the stigma of bastardy has been around, it started a long time ago. As the story expands, we can see that bastards are given different names. So you start with Jon Snow, you see his treatment right away. I mean, it's prominent right away, how Jon gets treated and how he's separated from the rest of the family. I mean, right away in the, the brand's first chapter, literally, he's like, I'm not a Stark. You know, the dire wolves are meant and then the stuff with Catelyn. It just right away. You see what I'm saying? Even though North and South are different, culturally speaking, the treatment of bastards is not that different. They're treated roughly north or south, right? So it's it's also a personal subject because, I mean, seeing children in the same family treated inequitably, it's a form of unfair treatment that you can feel personally because it doesn't matter whether this is fiction or nonfiction. It's upsetting to see a child mistreated by an adult in any setting. And this is also something we see right away. Though it's not necessarily clear why, it matters so much until later. But right away, we see Catelyn being cruel to Jon Snow after Bran's fall. And while I'm one of those who criticized her for that, she certainly didn't create the rules. It's not her fault that the rules, that the laws, that the culture is so against bastards in the first place. And the reason they are is because they can claim titles. Her son's titles. Now, to be fair, of course, John didn't create those rules either. He's even less responsible for them than Catelyn is, but they apply to him all the same. She's not blaming him so much as the system and taking it out on him a little bit. And that gets to the heart of the matter, or the heart tree of the matter. Despite very different gods presiding over weddings and vows in the North versus the South, inheritance laws are pretty much the same, if not identical North and South. Which gets to the heart of the matter for Catelyn. She, as she expressed to Rob via the example of Damon Blackfire, you might be able to trust John. Fair point. He pushes back when she says, Can you trust John? He's like, Of course I can trust John. 
But she says, can your children trust his children? And what about their grandchildren? Now, Rob can't argue with that. That's a hard time. He can't really dismiss that one out of hand because for one thing, it takes the blame off of John and blames the system, which we just did. And that's the correct position, at least a correct position, in my opinion. And from where we're sitting, it's pretty easy to criticize Westerosi inheritance laws too, <laughs> which is the, the root of all this as well. And because this topic is so large, well, we're dividing it as we often do by region with the most populous of the kingdoms. And we'll stay mostly character-focused, also as we so often do. Twist, though, as part of delving into characters who bear the surname Flowers, we will also be examining characters who were never explicitly called Flowers, but were very likely or clearly bastards born in the Reach with one or more parents from the Reach. Though they are not examples from the Reach, we need to look no further than, say, Joffrey, Marcella, and Tommen, who are children that are clearly bastards, yet don't actually have a bastard name. No one actually calls them Marcella Hill or Tom and Hill, which would be the right bastard name for them. But it's not as if we don't have examples from the Reach too. In fact, let's start here with a veritable bombshell of example. Bastardy bombshell targeted at those prideful nobles of the Reach in a manner very unique to them. It's almost funny when you pinpoint the nature of their origin, given just how proud they are of their birth. Remember, Olena telling Sansa how, you know, the Florence have a better claim to High Garden than we do, or, and she's saying we, even though she's married into the Tyrell, she's a red wine by birth. Anyway, they all trace their ancestry to Garth Greenhand, right? We all know that by this point. They clamor and squabble over who's the closest related to Garth Greenhand, even though this is thousands of years in the past, indeterminate. It would never be possible to determine this. But keep in mind, Garth had dozens, if not hundreds of children with dozens, if not hundreds of women. How many of those women was he married to? One? A, a few? And did they accept polygamous marriage? I mean, all the famous houses of the Reach were founded by bastards. <laughs> so they're all bastard houses when you think about it. Like, they all had to start that way. They, they don't want us reminding them of that. <laughs> don't, don't let them hear me say that. <laughs> but that's how they all started, right? Pretty much. I mean, there may be one or two exceptions, but... In a sense, they're all bastards, <laughs> which we, we like to deconstruct the idea of bastardy in the first place because it, it is a little silly. But there's something to it, you know, in the, when you're living with inheritance laws that exist the way they do in Westeros. You can't just ignore that either, can you? So we won't be just spending all our time delving into ancient questions of parentage, although that is fun to talk about the old stuff. We'll mostly be looking at more recent characters because that's what we have more recent, what we have more on. But we'll also be looking forward because several of the bastards under the microscope today are still alive and kicking, still kicking, and we're still picking these flowers today. All that and more on this episode of History of Westeros podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome, my friends. You may notice we have no Sean today. I'm not wearing headphones. There's no other screen next to me. Ashe is here, of course. Couldn't do this without her. But Sean's off this week, so we'll take the bastard squad on without him. But we had a lot of help from Nina, 
You know, she was particularly helpful because she knows sigils so well, way better than I do. And one of the things we we do with sigils here is think about how bastards often reverse the colors of their native house to show their bastard status. For example, the example we gave already of the Blackfires is a famous one. They just reverse the Targaryen colors. Instead of a red dragon on black, they got a black dragon on red. So we looked around for other houses in the Reach and tried to imagine what an inverted sigil of theirs would look like. And that helps us in a few places maybe guess or at least narrow down where some of these characters came from. Because a couple of them, they have the flower surname. We don't actually know which house they're from, but their colors might give us a clue. There's other techniques we use to figure out a few of these, but most of them we just know. So shout out to Nina, goodqueenalley.tumblr.com. And her latest post is actually comes to us from our friend Stephen Atwell. He was asked about Henry VIII, a painting, the family of King Henry VIII, and why does it have Jane Seymour rather than Catherine Parr in it? And he deferred the question to Nina because she know, she's so knowledgeable about that. So if that interests you, then check out goodqueenalley.tumblr.com for the full answer. All right. This episode was voted on by patrons. They chose Bastard Squad over four other topics. I expanded it to five topics this time. That's right. That's right. Next week is Trial by Theory, which you might say, wait, didn't we do that already? No, we didn't. We had to postpone it. I got a little sick. The good news on that is y'all have time to send in more theories if you want to. Yeah, and that episode will be a giveaway episode. Where we're going to give away some shirts and whatnot. History of Westeros shirts, not just random shirts. Uh, <laughs> to some people who submitted <laughs> theories, whether you submit them live via Patreon or email or wherever. I have a big document and I'm going to randomize it. So anyone is in the running, even if we don't actually list off your theory in the episode. So mm-hmm. get those in. And the week after that, we have a great guest. We have Dr. Kavita coming back. Yay, we do. Uh, yeah. Well, the topics will be voted on by y'all on Patreon. So when you vote, keep in mind that it'll have Dr. Kavita on for that one. That's right. We already took a vote for March 12th. We're going to bump that one to March 19th. So that'll be a battle episode. Looks like it's going to be the Battle of the Trident. And on March 26th, we're going to have Nina back as as a guest to talk about Baylor the Blessed. So we'll do another Targaryen King. We talked about Baylor a bit with the Aemon topics recently. So lots to come. Let's get to this one now. At the end of the episode... We'll suggest some other ones you can listen to to stay immersed. And we'll give the answer to this trivia question, which is, who is the last character with a Westerosi bastard name to appear on page in A Dance with Dragons? Are you counting the appendices? I'm not counting the appendices. I'm counting it has to be a chapter. And I'm not counting someone who is a bastard but doesn't have a bastard name. For example, Varys is in the Kevin epilogue, and he might be a bastard, but I'm not counting him. No one calls him Varys Waters or Varys Blackfire or whatever you might want to call him. And I'm not counting Tommen, who's also in that chapter, because he's Tommen Baratheon, even though we know he's a bastard. I'm talking about someone who actually has one of those surnames. Who's the last one to appear? Yeah, answer at the end. There are quite a few individuals who are bastards, but don't have a surname, or some who have a nickname that serves to conceal their heritage, and other such quirks. Not all bastards from the Reach are clearly and cleanly referred to as flowers. In other words, this reflects the nature of a system that is both ancient and inconsistent. Because it's not like there's some office of bastardy to keep track of all these things realm-wide. Although, in certain real-world societies, they did kind of keep track of that. There were laws about it. It, it, Westeros is actually less strict than the real world. But we're going to talk about real-world bastards some other time. Because this particular topic, well, the reach bastards alone is so large just just in Westeros. 
And of course, one more to- point on that in terms of concealing bastardy, lots of families conceal their bastard or the parentage of people at their household that are a bastard, but they claim aren't like, uh, like Littlefinger. In this case, of course, Littlefinger is, is doing the opposite and claiming a noble person is a bastard <laughs> <laughs> rather than the other way around. But still, it makes for a good example because that sort of thing happens. And at the end of this episode, we'll have another example kind of like that. And it's one of the fun ones. But they're all pretty fun, if I say so myself. We had to do some sort of arbitrary categorization within the category of Bastard Squad flowers. It's fun to do. It's mostly color-based here. We'll go with black flowers first. One of the reasons I framed the intro the way I did wasn't just because of the gotcha moment regarding Garth Greenhand, but because when researching this episode, I noticed that none of the people named flowers who made it into the histories are pre-conquest figures. That's not even that long ago, right? That's only 300 years ago. It's clearly a matter of lack of records. Obviously, there were bastards in the reach before Aegon's conquest. And while the name Flowers, while we're not sure when it became a tradition, it surely predates the conquest. After all, Brandon Snow was a side Torrin Stark during the conquest. And unless Snow just predates Flowers by a long time, I kind of doubt that, though. What do you think? Yeah, Nina and I both agree with that. Consider the the idea that other regional bastard names existed before the conquest. The examples mm-hmm. given here are Rivers, like Benedict Rivers, which was the King Benedict First Justman, or Adam Rivers, both kings of the Riverland, you know, good for them, mm, and Hill, as in Addison Hill. So clearly there were bastard names in the Westerlands and in the Riverlands. So I think it just makes sense that there would be in the Reach. Good point. Yeah, yeah, it does make sense. And I like the idea too of the other regional bastard names. For example, there's already groups of that. For example, I have a hard time believing that all bastards in the Iron Islands are called Pike and have always been that way. Like Pike hasn't been the dominant president. Like Pike wasn't even the dominant center of the islands a thousand years ago. So why would it be the center of bastard names? Or You know what I think the bastard name for the whores were? (laughs) <laughs> what? Can you build- <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make you say it. <laughs> Slut. <laughs> nice. That's a good one. For example, there's even examples of that now. For example, there's even examples of that now. On Driftmark, Adam and Alan were called of Hull. They weren't called Waters, you know? That's an example probably of islands having a, their own thing going on because island culture is sometimes separate from the mainland. They do things their own way. That would explain some of these other things, especially the Ironborn. Like, why would they all have the same pike name across all umpteen islands? Anyway, it probably doesn't predate Garth Greenhand's time, whenever that actually was, and whatever actually he was. That becomes a discussion point for us then. When did Flowers become a bastard surname? Did that tradition start in the Reach? Was it less important prior to the coming of the Andals? Bastardy counts for little north of the Wall among the Free Folk, but it does count for some. That might be a clue, though, still. After all, remember Craster? That's the thing that set him off, being called Bastard. Well, the thing that made him reach for his axe and attack, and that was a bad idea on his part, but it is the thing that set him off. So even people beyond the wall can be upset. You can see that as an insult. Mm-hmm. Again, though, inheritance laws also didn't change when the Andals came. Uh, But if you go back far enough, even law isn't the right word. Tradition might be more accurate. And the farther you go back, the two can be harder to tell apart for tradition and law. And and even now, the two are intertwined. Nina says it's important to emphasize that the Andals did not invent hereditary royal or lordly dynasties. Families like the Gardeners have been in power ruling as hereditary kings for thousands of years before the first Andals arrived in Westeros. 
any hereditary ruling system has to establish a way to determine who's in and who's out, who's next, who's eligible, who succeeds, who has claims, right? Whatever factors separate that, that had to be determined at some point, wasn't all determined at once and then set in stone forever. But the point is, declaring who's legitimate and who's not kind of makes sense as a way to handle that. Even though it, there's a lot of flaws in that system, you can see why it would have been the way to go in very, very early times. Now, to be fair, some families actually do accept their bastards. They treat them pretty well, just as some do not, or maybe more do not. There's an endless variety of scenarios and possibilities, just as there are an endless variety of types of flowers. Makes them kind of a well-placed metaphor in terms of their name. When their families do reject them, or even when they don't, they often join organizations. Frequently, these are like the life commitment variety type organizations. If your own family won't have you, well, you join another family. Someone like a, an organization that treats you like family or that has aspects to it that are familial or at least something that you can count on. You take an oath to join the King's Guard, the Knight's Watch, Maesterhood, Septas, Septon, Silent Sisters, or just by joining a cause that puts you in a true Game of Thrones type situation, win or die, like committing to one side of a civil war especially a particular leader, especially if you're prominent, especially if everyone's going to know, <laughs> you're not going to be like, who did you fight for in that war? You know, no, no one's going to, everyone's going to know who you fought for when it's, if you're a prominent warrior. So let's start with one of those, Black Byron Flowers. One place where Westeros gets itself all confused is when a bastard is a great warrior. Why is this confusing? Because Westeros esteems the warrior perhaps most of all among the seven and in the North, it's not much different, even though they don't care much for the seven. So when a shunned bastard turns out to be a great warrior, it's like the immovable object cultural stigma meets the irresistible force cultural idea. Love the warrior, hate the bastard, but what about when they're the same person? Hmm, yeah, so Westeros kind of gets itself twisted up when, when you get a situation like that. And no singular individual embodied this confusion more so than Damon Blackfire, who found, again, his greatest support in the Reach. Damon was famously legitimized, of course, so that does change things for him, and, but he's not the focus anyway. Still, a lot of people still considered him a bastard even after the legitimization, just like happens to Ramsey and surely others who have been legitimized. Other people will not allow them to forget that who, who what they once were. So legally, though, Damon was no longer a bastard. Both his parents were Targaryen, which maybe helped with some of the stigma, but he did also raise the bar by being such a great warrior. He may have been inspiring to other bastards. I mean, if a bastard can rise to be king, then these other bastards that looked up to him could rise above whatever their station was as well. Not to king like he was, but to rise higher than they were now, given the new, well, a rising bastard tide floats all bastard boats, right? <laughs> and they might look to it like, well, maybe this is a permanent change. Maybe finally Westeros is going to look at bastards with merit rather than birth. Maybe that would have happened if Damon had won, but of course he didn't. And that may have, in the long run, made it worse because in, the, in retrospect, Damon looked like a, a rebel who tore the realm apart to a lot of people. And that's not good in retrospect. Had he won and ruled reasonably well and things had gone well afterwards, a lot of ifs, but had he ruled well, or at least ruled okay, yeah, it may have really changed how bastards were viewed going forward. It may have set a permanent change, or at least a temporary 
long-term change, like 100 years, and maybe things would have just reverted. But it would have changed the view of bastards quite a lot, I think. Nina says, and Damon might have seemed to provide these bastards more immediate opportunity as well. Yeah, that's a good point. Some of them might have gotten lands and titles. They might have been promoted. Their trueborn parents or, or brothers and sisters may have been set aside because they fought for Daron. And remember, too, that <laughs> the other thing about Daron was that one of the arguments was that he was a bastard, even though that's almost certainly a lie started by his father, Aegon IV. But had Damon won, the official histories might have said that Daron was a bastard. And that, which might have, in turn, not done such great things for the future of bastards in Westeros as well. Like, you're promoting one bastard, but throwing another one under the bus in the same, maybe that just breaks things even. But what Nina's saying is that a lot of people supported Damon would have gotten rewards, lands, titles, and honors. And a lot of those people were bastards. So they could have started new houses or done other things to raise the profile of bastards. But that's a big what if, a big thing that didn't happen. Nina also says this might have been especially encouraging for bastards of the Reach, given that Daron had not only rejected any idea of continuing a war against, of conquest against Dorne, which meant no spoils to be won, because a lot of people wanted to fight Dorne because they liked to fight and they didn't like Dorne. <laughs> This was also a method of bringing Dorn into the realm. Right, that was a big thing that Daron did. He finished the work of Baelor in completing this peaceful completion of Westeros into one body rather than a separate thing. And this is why a lot of people fought for Daemon, because they wanted a chance, they wanted the opportunity that war brings, a chance to win renown, fame, and get land and titles. You can't do that in peace, right? It's hard to do that in peace anyway. So someone like Byron Flowers, we don't know what house he was with. Black, of all the colorful names attached to a, a person, like black, white, blue, green, any color, black is probably the least determinative because there's so many ways black is just such a broad term. It can mean color, like either skin or hair. Yeah, I, one of the examples here is Black Betha Blackwood, which is for her dark hair and dark eyes. But also her house, Blackwood. And the same is true of Black Alley, Blackwood. Yeah. And then we have skin tone like Brown Ben Plum or Black Balak, who that, is, that does refer to their skin tone. Or temperament like Black Walder. Yeah, as, as the quote goes, <laughs> Rom noted that he was not named for the color of his beard. <laughs> <laughs> or they just choose the colors, like because they reverse the colors of their house and it turns, it makes them, black becomes the prominent color. And that was what I was saying at the beginning, how Nina and I were looking for houses with a secondary color of black, because if you reverse it, then the secondary color becomes the prominent color. So maybe Black Byron was from House Peak or, say, House Cockshaw or House Black Bar or maybe even a Varner or Laygood, little lesser houses like that. These are all houses that definitely or maybe fought for the Blackfires. Cockshaw definitely did. Peak obviously one of the most prominent Blackfire supporters, period. So that could have been also just a, ref a re reflection of his allegiance to Damon Blackfire. So a member of the Black Dragon, you know, brotherhood. So really, it goes to show, don't make too many assumptions when someone has the nickname Black something, because <laughs> it really could be a lot of possibilities. Less so when we look at other colorful nicknames, but still, still true. Like no one ever calls someone like a red-tempered 
you know, <laughs> but you might, or white tempered, but black tempered, that's, that's yeah. a term. I don't know, you know, anyway, yeah, I think you can see the point there. Like you have a real blue temper. <laughs> <laughs> like, nope. I've never heard that. Blue pink. sense of if humor. If it was pink, Byron Flowers, it'd you be really You have a blue sense of humor. Down. Yeah, it's <laughs> true. <laughs> Now, as much as people looked up to Damon Blackfire, as I said, the fact that he lost arguably set things back for bastards. Catelyn Stark would argue that this is why he's the best example of the basic point here. Bastards usurp. Bastards lead to civil war. Maybe it's not their fault, but it happens. That's why she brought him up to rob. Because Mm -hmm. maybe farther back, they were trusting each other. But when you get all these extended families and different branches of the family, eventually it leads to something like this. And in the existence of other bastards enables that because the bastards can all join together like they did with Dane. Now, in Catelyn's case, perhaps it's not fair to cite the worst case scenario. That is what she was doing when talking to Rob. Maybe that's not fair. They were called the great bastards after all. <laughs> so it's like, maybe that's not, maybe we should look at some other examples and not just them. If Rob, who was only you know 16 at the time, knew his history a little better, he might have fired back with some counterexamples, which we can do, <laughs> where bastard brothers were staunchly loyal to their house, or just loyal in general, like Adam of Hull. <laughs> What's on his tombstone? One word, loyal, right? Although he was also legitimized, but like Damon Blackfire. But that's the point here, because Rob was proposing to legitimize John. So that is a perfect fit for this scenario, whether it's Adam, Damon, or John. These were all bastards that got legitimized. Well, John, not necessarily yet. We'll see about that. I also, just in general, would have loved more historical name drops in that scene between Catelyn and Rob, but I always want that. So what else is new? Now, Damon, of course, died on the Redgrass Field. What about Black Byron? Did he? Here's a quote. It would suit Lord Bloodraven if their names were all forgotten. So he has forbidden us to sing of them. But I remember Rob Rain, Gareth the Grey, Sir Aubrey Ambrose, Lord Gorman Peak, Black Byron Flowers, Red Tusk, Fireball, Bitter Steel. I ask you, has there ever been such a noble company, such a role of heroes? Well, first of all, I, I question calling Gorman Peak and Bitter Steel noble, <laughs> but <laughs> maybe heroic. I mean, they were definitely brave men, but I don't know about heroes, but brave. Yeah, so Sir Eustace is. Very biased. But Fireball was killed before the battle. Bittersteel was not. Bittersteel didn't die during the battle at all. So that proves that he's not only speaking of the fallen. I mean, maybe by the time Sir Eustace was speaking this line, maybe Black Byron had died. But there's no proof he died at the Redgrass Field, given this context. He may have even escaped overseas and joined Bittersteel. He may have become one of the first members of the Golden Company when it was formed. That's a total possibility. And it may not have even mattered as much to someone like Black Byron, given that he didn't have lands or keep. He was not a legitimized bastard. He wouldn't have been losing as much by fleeing overseas. So it would have been an easier choice for him. And in some ways, we can maybe up the percentage of our guess here on him. It's harder to guess someone like a landed noble fled overseas because they're giving up their lands. Maybe they knew their land was lost and they had no choice. But you can see why some of them would stay because they would maybe be able to negotiate keeping it for a penalty, but not someone who had no land in the first place, clearly. Our next example definitely did, definitely didn't join the Golden Company, rather, minus the when it was formed bit. This person is still alive. 
and thus has an impact on the story that we can only call TBD, to be determined, which argues that he's among the most worthy of our focus. That is Franklin Flowers. Quote. At the gate, Halden said something to the sergeant of guards, and a runner was sent off to find a captain. When he turned up, he was just as ugly as the last time Griff laid eyes on him. A big-bellied, shambling hulk of a man, the sellsword, had a seamed face crisscrossed with old scars. His right ear looked as if a dog had chewed on it, and his left was missing. Have they made you a Captain Flowers? Griff said. I thought the Golden Company had standards. It's worse than that, you bugger, said Franklin Flowers. They knighted me as well. The Golden Company does have standards, battle standards with those golden <laughs> scars. Anyway. Also a good example of a character, Roy Dotrice, actually voices perfectly. I know people complain about some of the voices because he shouldn't be doing little girl voices. You should not ask an old... Uh, anyway, I've said that before. But he does this one really well. Arguably, he's a golden flower instead of black because he's in the Golden Company. And he calls himself a brown apple fossway, and brown is closer to gold. But anyway, whatever. <laughs> His mother was a washerwoman at Cider Hall. She was raped by a son of Lord Fossaway. But between that and his arrival at the Golden Company, we know nothing. He just he fled to the Golden Company, joined it. We don't know why he left. Maybe he did something to upset them. He already didn't like them because of what was done to his mother. But he lived there while he was young. It's not clear. It's not clear when he left, whether there was some reason he had to leave in a hurry, like, say, Duck. But it's not hard to guess that he was treated poorly. He's also ugly, as we pointed out here, which doesn't help. And, and he's good at fighting. Nina says, this is a reminder of the deeply classist nature of the Westerosi social political existence. Franklin Flowers exists because a Fossaway aristocrat saw his mother as an easy, as easy prey because she was living on his estate and because she has, isn't going to find justice on an estate ruled by this fa the family who's the perpetrator of this crime. It's a very unjust system, obviously. And of course, Franklin can see that. He comes from this. He can see the injustice. It's pretty easy for him to look on the Fossaways with violence, right? I don't, it's hard to like tell a man in that spot, like, no, you shouldn't hate them. They're just living on the, no, of course not. His mother was probably further mistreated. This probably wasn't the only time she was mistreated. It probably wasn't a one and done sort of thing. And even if it was, the one was horrible and life altering. So yeah. And that's why he has this memorable line about when they're debating whether we go East, whether we go West, whether we invade Westeros now. This is his bottom line, quote, so long as I can kill some fossaways, I'm for it. So he might even be more dangerous than this. This guy seems a bit, we're meant to think he's a bit of a brute. He's a little more sneaky than that, I think. But picture what happens when they take Griffin's Roost. Connington sees the ravens flying out the Maester's Tower, and they keep shooting them down, right? And then he's like, no more birds. He tells that to Flowers. Now, he doesn't say kill the Maester, but that's what happens that he throws the maester out the window. That wasn't necessary. Just take the maester hostage or captive, right? I don't know about this guy, but he's interesting. I suspect he's younger than Connington because he's talented enough to have risen to captain, but hadn't even been knighted when John left 12 years prior. So my guess is he was kind of a noob and quickly made a name for himself because he's good at fighting and then good with people. We see that he's good with people. We see the way he talks with people and... Well, you got to have some leadership skills to rise to captain. That's not a, a fighting only talent. You know, you have to be able to lead people. And we don't know how many captains there are in the company, but we're pretty sure it's the highest rank other than 
captain general because it kind of implies that it's like chief executive. You have the chief executive and the other executives. Well, he's captain general. There's a bunch of captains and then the top captain. So I think captain is, hey, there's like a bunch of second in commands there. He's the one who introduces Connington and Aegon to the rest of the officers, which implies perhaps he has even higher standing amongst the other captains. And then he's the one that introduces Aegon to, quote, the lads, which is he just introduces him to important people around the company, like the cooks and just people he should know, which means he's getting in with him. He's getting close to, he's befriending Aegon. This is a smooth move on his part. The guy that they're going to make into a king. Well, Franklin Flowers right at his side, his buddy, you know, I think that's what he's doing. He's befriending the guy, the kid that's rising high. Smart, right? <laughs> and he's the one that leads the ram against Griffin's Roost. So he's out there kind of in the front, obviously not afraid. It sort of takes charge whenever Harry Strickland's not around, although John is giving orders when they're at Griffin's Roost. It's, he is Lord Connington, after all. Nina says, guess that Franklin's pretty skilled as a warrior and commander. His many arm rings, he's a, Lord, a Lord's Ransom in arm rings, this is a fighting existence. I mean, you they fight to live. They take contracts that involve extreme violence. So his adult life has been all of this. 12 years of fighting in the most professional company in the world. That is not something you can easily despise. And a given the merit-based system that they operate in and the type of merit you have to have to rise, being a good leader, being a good fighter, then yeah, this guy is, this guy is pretty important. Flowers wants to kill Fossilways, but what about the end goal? I don't suppose that's, I don't suppose he's just going to be done once he's killed some Fossilways. Cider Hall itself, probably. He probably wants to be the Lord of Cider Hall. That would be a great way to take back and take control over the system of justice that allowed his mother to be raped and no one to be punished for it. Ultimate, the ultimate payback. And certainly, if he kills enough Fossilways, it's kind of his by default. <laughs> but there are a lot of Fossilways out there. The apples. Well, there's lots of apples. Uh, maybe they're all close together, though, because the apple doesn't fall far. From <laughs> oh, shoot. Yeah, uh, but, but Aegon, yeah, if we get so far, Aegon would just grant it to him as a siege. Like, I'm Aegon VI. I've taken the Iron Throne. I reward my followers. It's pretty straightforward, the reward he would give to Franklin Flowers, <laughs> the, the seat of his house. It's very straightforward, right? But there would also be a need to fight the existing Reach Lords that are not with Aegon VI. He can't just march into King's Landing, take the throne, and the Reach bends its knee. No, maybe that'll pacify the, the Crownlands, or at least some of them. But the Reach will still be like, no, we're not bending the knee to you. We've already thrown our lot in with, well, depending on which faction we're talking about. But Randall Tarley is an example Nina yeah. gives here. That's one that... I was about to say too, yeah. That's... We actually, we, yeah, we definitely think he, he will fight for he Aegon. Will flip. Yeah, he's a good and, uh, candidate to flip. Maybe Rowan as well and some others. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I do wonder, like Randall Tarley, for example, what his react. Like, let's say Aegon's like, okay, I'm here, I'm I'm taking over, and I have this guy I want to put in charge of Cider Hall. If Randall will be like, okay, I got to swallow my tongue and like follow my king, or if he'll be like, this is a bastard and a brute and a not fit to be like, I, you know, like if he would. Yeah. Bristle. He has to be legitimized. He would be legitimized. Yeah, yeah, that's true, too. That might help him swallow it, you know? Yeah. Like, okay, officially, he's not a bastard. And he yeah, might still hate yeah. that, but he's like, okay, well, he could get around that, you know? <laughs> that, might be, that might be a small enough pill to swallow. There's also another angle to look at this. What if Franklin Flowers himself turns traitor on his own people? Not super likely, but given his proximity to Aegon, someone could bribe him to take out his young charge in exchange for the thing he wants, which is Cider Hall. Now, 
the thing is, the guy that would be making an offer like that is like a Varys. And Varys is the one on this side. So Varys won't be making Franklin Flowers that offer. In fact, he might sniff that out if someone else does it. So I, I think this is a pretty remote chance, but we always have to be complete with our thinking and we can't assume Franklin Flowers will stay loyal. And I think if he does turn, this would be the kind of thing he would do. It's funny too. Aegon wants to lead. That's where we leave things off, right? He wants to lead the taking of Storm's End. And who's going to be right by his side? Probably Franklin Flowers. If I, would, if I was Franklin Flowers doing the things I'm doing, I would want to be at Aegon's side as often as possible because he's got goals. He wants Aegon to fulfill his ambitions. You know, it's kind of funny. It's confusing. The, the Lord of Skyreach is Franklin Fowler. So Franklin Flowers, Franklin Fowler. Yeah. <laughs> and I mentioned Duck briefly. Sir Franklin's story may remind you of him a bit because, again, Duck is really trusted by Prince Aegon too. So these two characters may interact a bit. Duck being one of Aegon's Kingsguard, Franklin Flowers setting himself up to be Aegon's right-hand man or a important operative of his, then those two will be together. Now, Raleigh's not a bastard. He was born at Bitterbridge. At least it's not as far as we know he wasn't. And Bitterbridge is where our next profile originates. First, though, Ethan S. says five, sends a super chat and says, with Baby Monster as an example, how much do you think we're meant to consider the others as the archetypical bastards who Westerosi misunderstand? Ooh, that's a great way to look at it because, all right, so clearly what I think Ethan S. is referring to here with this question is the idea that the others are like magically converted first men, which would make them sort of bastard children of a sense in that they are, they have the blood origin of human parents but were raised elsewhere and aren't part of the family and are the revenge of the mistreated. The, the, the children were mistreated by humanity, so they made their children into weapons. Or they made our children into weapons and used them against us. Because if, if the children altered humans and made them into weapons to send back against other humans... Yeah, that's kind of like taking the thrown away humans and saying, hey, look, they threw you away. That wasn't fair. They threw me away too. Let's team up and go get them. That's a lot of the, the attitude you see with the rejected folk saying, let's all gang up together and, and, and get those people that rejected us. Like takes one leader to unite that, like, like a Damon Blackfire or maybe even a Mance Raider, if you look at it that way. As Tara Incognita says in the chat, bastards are otherized. <laughs> yeah, yeah, otherized are bastards, the bastards are otherized. That's very perfect, y'all. You nailed it. That's a really, really, really great take. And Ethan asks, the one thing I'm going to say, though, is you kind of ruined my surprise. <laughs> <laughs> Baby Monster is coming up in this episode, but we'll save that for later. If you're not fully understanding what I mean by that, then the surprise is at least partly intact. <laughs> so Tom Flowers is our next one. Just before the Dance of the Dragons fully broke out, the lords at court were forced to bend the knee to King Aegon II by the Greens, right? Before they, they, they kind of got the jump on the blacks and were like, all right, we've crowned Aegon, bend the knee or you're a traitor. And they were like, whoa, what's happening? I don't even, uh, what the hell? Like, it was also quick. If you remember on TV and in the books, though, some few refused, one of whom was Lord Caswell of Bitterbridge. Those who refused were executed. And on TV, this was particularly prominent because Caswell was kind of made the example of <laughs> because Lord Caswell was hanged on TV after being caught by Lord Laris, but in the book, he was beheaded along with the rest. We don't know if his bastard son will be on the TV as well. We hope so, though, because this is him, Tom Flowers. Tom Flowers, the bastard of Bitterbridge, didn't go so cleanly. As you might guess, House Caswell, after that, after what was done to their lord, well, they didn't switched to the Greens after their lord was executed by the Greens. Of course, they were staunch for the Blacks. 
Usually the houses do fight against the houses that kill their lords, unless, they're, unless there's hostages involved or something like that, and they're forced into it. But they weren't in this case. Maybe they should have kept Lord Caswell as a hostage, because then they wouldn't have had Tom Flowers up against them. And he led the response. He was one of apparently five commanders at the Battle on the Honeywine. The others were all of high rank here. Lord Tarley, Lord Costain, Lord Rowan, and Sir Alan Beesbury. Of course, the Beesburys were upset as well because of what was done to Lord Beesbury, the Master of Coin, right? That's pretty straightforward. So notably, Tom Flowers, probably a Sir also. He's probably Sir Tom Flowers, very likely, especially if he's a commanding Reach Knights. Like, imagine them, the pride flaring up at being led by not only a bastard, but a guy who's not a knight, like they just wouldn't do it, right? <laughs> they would be like, ah, we're not following this guy. Especially Lord Tarley, Lord Costain, and Lord Rowan being at the same relative rank in terms of this battle. So this guy must have been special to be at the same level as them. I mean, Lord, 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 Sir, and Bastard, right? That implies he's a good warrior, good commander, if not great warrior. He might have been legitimized had he survived the war, but he didn't survive the war. It was going well for a while. The Black Armies had trapped the Hightower host between them. They were winning, but, quote, The arrival of Prince Daron and his dragon reversed the tide of battle. Now it was Lord Ormond's men attacking, screaming curses at their foes, whilst the Queen's men fled. By day's end, Lord Rowan was retreating north with the remnants of his host. Tom Flowers lay dead and burned amongst the reeds. The two Allens had been taken captive, and Lord Costain was dying from a wound given him by bold John Roxton's black blade, the Orphan Maker. One thing Tom Flowers can say, one thing that his family can say, is that no one beat him in combat. No mortal human. He was burned to death by Tessarian. Yeah. So, hey, no mortal, no man took down Tom Flowers. It took a dragon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of boss, right? It's silver lining. <laughs> Even Prince Daron admitted this much when Lord Hightower heaped praise on him after saying, quote, My lord is kind to say so, but the victory belongs to Tessarian. I'd say Tom Flowers would agree if he ha- had the mouth to speak. Yeah, the mouth Tom Flowers to might speak. be a good example of a bastard who raises the esteem of other bastards then. Because like I said, he'd be remembered well for this, for his bravery in battle, for rising to be a co-commander with lords who were amongst the best of their era. So, well, I think that helps. His story might be better known than one would think in that region, in the southern portion of the reach. Nina says it may also be a very local sort of fame or one, uh, or one most prized among members of the Caswell family. Compare, say, Melissa Blackwood, who has a statue honoring her in the Raven Tree Godswood, but it's only vaguely known about by, say, Jamie. Maybe because she's not a warrior and Jamie's like upbringing was all, he was obsessed with stories of war and stuff like that. Tom Flowers might be a regional hero for the Caswells and people of Bitterbridge, but that doesn't mean, you know, people in King's Landing or the North would have heard of him. Bitterbridge is a well-trafficked location, so it is possible that the story has spread over the years. House Caswell has participated in many of the famous civil wars in Westerosi history because of its being so well-trafficked and somewhat central in the reach. The scene where Catelyn witnesses Brienne defeat the Knight of Flowers, not to be confused with a Flowers of Bastard name, to win a spot in the Rainbow Guard. That was at Bitterbridge. The reason it's such an important location is because, as the name suggests, there's a bridge, and it crosses the Mander right where the Rose Road meets it. So the Rose Road is a major highway, basically, the equivalent of a highway in this, in this setting. 
And this bridge is part of that. But the bridge was only relatively recently renamed to Bitter Bridge. For most of Westeros history, it was called Stone Bridge. And we're talking a long time ago that it's had that name because the Ironborn used to raid up the Mander as far as Stone Bridge. And the Ironborn haven't raided up the Mander that far for, I think, more than a thousand years, I think, until Euron. (laughs) But they weren't referring to that in this context. So in 42 AC, one of the first major battles of the Faith Militant Uprising against Magor the Cruel took place. Six royalist armies caught an army of 9,000 poor fellows as they tried to cross upriver of Stonebridge. Not too far upriver, but they were doing it, I guess, to maybe avoid being seen. And if they crossed at the bridge, well, that's kind of obvious. They would have, they would have been seen coming. But they were seen anyway. The slaughter was so great that the river ran red for as much as 20 leagues, which is like 60 miles, if I remember my leagues correctly. And Stonebridge became known as Bitterbridge thereafter. So great was the carnage that even the Caswell Castle became known as Bitterbridge as well. So it's the town, the bridge, and the castle. All, they're all Bitterbridge now. The battle likely would not have even taken place had things gone slightly differently earlier in the year, which brings us cleanly to our next example, Dickon Flowers. Men, do not follow the instructions implied by this name, especially <laughs> not if you're dealing with roses or any other thorny flower. This is a character, not a guideline or a command. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, stick on flowers. Before the poor fellows were slaughtered at Bitterbridge and elsewhere, because that wasn't the only place they were slaughtered by Magor and his people, a small group of warrior sons attempted to forestall all of that slaughter by challenging Magor's claim to the crown. A brave group of seven champions led by Sir Damon Morgan, a.k.a. Damon the Devout, fought Magor and his six champions shortly after Aenys' death. Now, none of the other seven were bastards as far as we can tell. But Sir Dickon Flowers was. Like the other warrior sons at the King's Landing chapter, he was living at the Sept of Remembrance. He was called the Bastard of Beesbury. Another Beesbury coming up here, which is why he's included in the Black Flowers here, because if he reversed his arms like so many bastards do, it would be black beehives on a yellow field instead of yellow beehives on a black field. Now, we don't know much about his background. Just because he was a second or third son, Actually, he may have been, I mean, he was a bastard, so he couldn't have inherited normally, but he may have been the eldest. It's entirely possible. The only thing we know, we can only think we can be too sure about is that he was pious <laughs> because he joined the warrior's sons. Maybe he was unwelcome at Honey Holt. Maybe they did him, maybe he did them proud by going off to do this, like Jon Snow volunteering to join the watch, something like that. He took care of an internal problem, conflict within his own family by volunteering to leave and making his own way out in the world. Who knows? Just pure guesswork here. Either way, it's worth noting that House Beesbury is sworn to House Hightower, and the Hightowers had a long, close association with the faith, right? That's even true in the era of House of the Dragon, Dance of the Dragon's time, and true afterwards as well. Of course, the Citadel is right there next to the Hightower. They have super long influence, mostly a one-way influence, the Hightower's influencing the Citadel, less so the other way around. But either way, I'm sorry, the Citadel. I said the Citadel. I meant to say the, the High Septon and the, the Great Septon, all that stuff. All the faith, mm. but also the Citadel. <laughs> so that is probably maybe part of this. The, the two degrees of separation here, you have the High Towers being so closely associated with the faith and some of their direct vassals would also by, in turn be directly associated with the faith. There's power in the faith. There's power in that organization. And it's a big part of the cultural center of Westeros is the worship of the seven. 
So it's not hard to see why this guy was under this umbrella. But he's clearly a great warrior too, being able to rise this high. You, you wonder, especially in that era, how were bastards treated by organizations like this? A lot of the seven worship sort of backs the nobility. Like it's designed, sort of geared, like a lot of religions are, sort of geared towards protecting people in power. Or religion, like, to be clear, a lot of times religions are altered to <laughs> affect people in power. They come, they maybe organically evolve some way and then get changed by people in power to more benefit them. That's pretty standard, right? Now, in this case, we don't know how they viewed bastards. Clearly, they allowed him to rise to this position, but this isn't a position of authority. It's a position of respect. There is a difference. You can have both, but this guy's a warrior. He's not telling people what to do. He's not giving commands. It's not the same as a Tom Flowers leading an army. This is just a, a champion. He's a maybe someone that's idle to, or not, idle's the wrong term, but someone to look up to, an example to other warrior sons. Because he was one of the seven chosen to fight Magor, the most important trial by seven in history to that point, quite possibly. Especially given what Magor went on to do and the effects of their loss. If they had beaten him, they would have averted all of the horrible things Magor did. If they went up to heaven afterwards and looked down, they would have been weeping over what Magor did next. All the various different things he did next, which were horrible, like burning the Sept of Remembrance where they all lived and all of their 700 brothers killed there. If they had just beaten him, that wouldn't have happened. You know a pious guy who's worked so hard to be one of the best fighters in this martial organization, he would have been just praying and hoping and giving everything he had to, to win that battle. But their best was not good enough. And it was close. Remember, only Ma Magor almost died also, even though he was the last one. He wasn't even standing. I would say the last man standing, but he wasn't even standing. <laughs> so dang. Yeah, so they would have prevented that and Bitterbridge and all that other stuff. But unfortunately... Magor was Magor. Next up, we have Black Shield. This is a good example of one that isn't called Flowers, but he very clearly must have been. Barristan the Bull recalls attorney where he defeated a mystery knight called Black Shield, who turned out to be the Bastard of Uplands. This would have been in the time frame of 278 to 281. So when Barristan was already in his 40s. Now, again, we don't know anything about this knight. We don't even have his full name. <laughs> we just know that well, the tourney was in Old Town, and Uplands is the seat of House Mullendore, which is right next to Old Town, due east, and the Mullendores are vassals of the High Towers. So the Bastard of Uplands is very clearly a Flowers. And we don't know why he was competing as a mystery knight, whether he was just trying to conceal his identity for some, maybe he was a criminal and wanted to hide who he was, maybe he was competing on behalf of some woman like Aemon the Dragon Knight did. Or uh, there's a lot of possibilities. As Bran would say, he would nod sage and say, yes, mystery knights, they, a very sophisticated topic. <laughs> so if you use the Mullendore colors and reverse them, you've got black on orange because their sigil is orange and black butterflies on a white field. So reversing that, you would either have orange butterflies with black wings, which is the bigger part of them. The butterfly body is much smaller than the wings. Or if you turn the white field and reverse that, you have black. Maybe all black, which would give you a black shield. Where, yeah, well, there you go. It's a perfect example of all these concepts about figure out who a character is, even without having an explicit name for them. Nina adds to this, one aspect of Reach Bastardy, which Black Shield might embody, is the ability for these men 
to use the prominence provided by such public displays of knighthood in order to form careers for themselves. With the Reach being the heart of chivalry, or at least the outward performance of chivalry in Westeros, it naturally fosters the staging of tourneys, and tourneys are a very good opportunity for able-bodied Westerosi males to make a name for themselves they might not otherwise have by birth or inheritance. If a knight is particularly good with a lancer able in the melee, he has a chance to become famous and or wealthy, even though he might have been born a bastard. So sort of what Nina's saying here is he's a mystery knight. You don't know who he is. You don't assume he's a bastard. You don't assume much of it all other than he's a knight. <laughs> But if you know they're a bastard right away, they might people already might be rooting against them. They might already be looking down on them. But if you don't know, then well, it's a mystery. Then afterwards, you're like, oh, they're a bastard. Okay, well, then you've already formed this opinion of them as a great warrior without the bias of bastardy attached to them. So this may have been a clever way for Black Shield to advance his reputation while setting the bias aside temporarily. Because he can't be a mystery knight at all times, obviously. Still, that's pretty clever. But that's just one guess. We don't know that Black Shield did that, but someone could have. This idea is out there. It does exist. It's a way to dodge your own stigma, at least temporarily. Set it aside during an event. You know, like, it's kind of clever. We'll come back to black flowers in the form of flowers in the Night's Watch. But it's time for a different color now. White flowers. Again, we'll reverse the color. Black and white are often mirror colors or reverse. So in keeping with bastards reversing the colors of their sigils, we'll go from black cloaks and shields to white. Kingsguard, of course. <laughs> Kingsguard in white. That is the most obvious example that we have. This guy's nickname, Robert Flowers, was Red Robert Flowers. So already he's throwing us off. No, he's a red and white flower. That's right. Yeah. He was not just in the Kingsguard. He was Lord Commander, in fact. The white's Lord Commander, Kingsguard. The red, who knows? Maybe he just said red hair. It's easier to narrow down with red than black. Because like I said before, there's no red personality or you can have red hair. I mean, you can have it for being a bloody man, a bloody person, like if you were, but that's, that's unlikely true. with the Kingsguard, exactly. Like, with how noble they really are, I kind of don't imagine that he was known for his bloodiness, but maybe. Yeah. But yeah, you could be known for that. And slurs aside, people don't have literally red skin. You may have red tone skin, but... And that hasn't yeah. really even been a thing in A Song of Ice and Fire, really, that particular no, right. skin. Like, I don't even, I don't know that that's ever been a reference point when talking about other races. I don't think it has, yeah. Uh, so yeah. It, doesn't, it seems out of place to, yeah. to think that would be the, the case here. So my guess is, I wouldn't guess that black something just means black hair because there's too many other possibilities. But red, I would strongly guess that it's probably just hair color. But with the caveat that it might not be. Actually, they mis they, they misinterpreted it this whole time. It was red. Like, he was very well-read. <laughs> he was a scholar of well the night. Well-read, Robert Flowers. Yeah, red, Robert Flowers. <laughs> <laughs> now, here are some examples of houses that might have be red using the bastard color, doing the reverse color guessing method. Tarly. Tarly is green with a red huntsman, so it could be red with a green huntsman. Weber. The red spider, right? The black spider on red or red spider on black. Red apple foss away in reverse, right? We've already had a brown apple foss away. Why not this? Nina says we couldn't, we shouldn't ignore the possibility that the red might have come from personality as well. That's a good point. Fireball for hot head and red hair. So Fireball had not checked off two of the boxes. Or Dalton Greyjoy, the red kraken. That was bloody deeds. Yeah. So yeah, that's yeah. a good example. And Nina's Christina <laughs> K here says calling someone red could also be a euphemism for drunk. <laughs> Oh, yeah, red face, because they drink yeah, a lot. That probably doesn't apply to this guy being Lord Commander of the King's Yeah, Guard, probably but not, but still is an interesting other angle on it, for She's sure. totally right to bring that up. Yeah, 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 totally. It would be interesting if Red Robert Flowers was Lord Commander of the King's Guard at the time of the first Blackfire Rebellion during the Redgrass Field. Maybe the red in his nickname could come from allegiance to the Red Dragon. 
as opposed to the black of Gaming Blackfire, which would contrast him if if the, if by chance Black Byron Flowers is, is black because of he fights for the Black Dragon. If his name's based in heraldry, though, the nickname would have come before he joined the Kingsguard, probably because of all the the whiteout, the bleaching that comes from joining the Kingsguard. But personality, then, it might have come at any time. So anyway, his name comes up thanks to Jamie, who's giving Sir Loras a lesson in humility via historical Kingsguard of note. Addison Hill, the White Owl, Michael Mertens, Jeffrey Norcross, they called him Never Yield. Red Robert Flowers, what can you tell me of them? Flowers is a bastard name, so is Hill. Yet both men rose to command the Kingsguard. Their tales are in the book. Roland Darklin is in here too, the youngest man ever to serve in the Kingsguard, until me. He was given his cloak on a battlefield and died within an hour of donning it. Astute regular listeners will recognize Roland Darklin as the answer to a recent trivia question. Note how Loris jumps on the bastard names right away. It's hard not to catch the prejudice when looking at these characters. And how and the, the higher up a family is, the more likely that prejudice is going to exist. Because the loss of their land to a bastard claim would be more devastating to a family with the, amongst the most amount of wealth and land. But to Jamie's credit, Jamie Lannister, also from a big, wealthy, powerful family, he teaches Loris that clearly these were men of good character, arguably even stronger because they had to rise higher. Loris and Jamie both had a fast lane to the Kingsguard, even though <laughs> Tywin didn't want that. Still, they had a fast lane to the Kingsguard because of who their families are. No Lannister or Tyrell head start was available for Red Robert Flowers. Probably, probably. Maybe he was of a highborn family, a particularly high prominence family, and they actually treated him well. It's possible. Although if Robert Flowers were himself a Tyrell, Jamie would have said so. <laughs> so it's probably not that family he's from. Nina adds, the point to Loras is to say that there is more to Kingsguard than just being than just its most famous and infamous stories. It's not just being a great warrior. That might be especially true if Red Robert Flowers, again, was Lord Commander during the first Blackfire Rebellion. If Gwen Corbray, who went sword to sword against Damon Blackfire in one of the most epic duels of the entire Blackfire rebellions in total, not just the first one. Well, that's remembered. But maybe Red Robert Flowers was right there with him. Maybe he ended up fighting somebody else. Maybe his leadership enabled the war to go as well as it did, in part. Obviously, he wasn't the only leader. And Jamie admits there are bad ones too, still, you know, even though he says that you shouldn't judge them by their name. And the point, so the point here is, let's let's dial it back a bit. The point is to push back against the idea that bastards are bad because they're bastards. Not to suggest that no bastards can be villains. Like any de-otherized, dehumanized group, whether it's real world, minority, cultural group, anything like that, you shouldn't judge a group by its whole membership or by individuals, right? Certainly any members of good groups, there could be bad people, right? Just because bastards aren't all bad doesn't mean they're all good either. There's definitely some bad ones. Our next example is probably just that, a bastard and villainous Kingsguard. But first, I want to guess at when Red Robert, 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 Red Robert Flowers existed. I, the one the reason Nina he never suggested, <laughs> suggested the first Blackfire Rebellion is because that is one of the best 
options for where we can place him. We, if he was just a regular Kingsguard, it would be almost impossible to figure out when he lived. But because he was Lord Commander, that narrows it down substantially. Because it can only be one Lord Commander at a time. So anytime we know the Lord Commander, Red Robert Flowers can't be it. So the most likely time, without going through all the details and why it could or couldn't be, is during the reigns of Aenys and Magor. And then, as Ina says, just during the early Blackfire and later Blackfire Rebellion eras, where we don't necessarily know who the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard was. So those are possibilities for Red Robert Flowers. But now let's talk about our bastard villainous Kingsguard, Mervyn Flowers. Here's a nice lengthy quote to get us started on him. Bastard-born himself, Sir Mervyn was regarded by most a dutiful, if not especially heroic, member of the Kingsguard, neither champion nor hero, but a seasoned soldier and a fair hand with a longsword, a little man who did as he was told. Not all men are as they seem, however, particularly in King's Landing. Those who knew Flowers best saw other sides of him. When not on duty, he was fond of wine, says Mushroom, who was known to have drunk with him. <laughs> Though sworn to chastity, he seldom slept alone, save in his cell at White Sword Tower. Despite being somewhat ill-favored, he had a rough charm that washerwomen and serving girls responded to, and when in his cups would even boast of having bedded certain highborn ladies. Like many bastards, he was hot of blood and quick to anger, seeing slights where none had been intended. Okay, a lot we can get from that. A seasoned soldier in the year 135 pretty much guarantees he fought in the Dance of the Dragons, which ended only four years prior. As a bastard of House Peak, he would have clearly been with the Greens. He would have likely been in the host that almost lost to Tom Flowers and company. So he might have been on the, the edge of death before Tessarion saved the whole group he was with. Then he would have been at the slaughter of Bitterbridge and Tumbleton and Second Tumbleton, possibly standing nearby when Roddy the Ruin charged the high tower position. He might have been really close to that. And he probably took part in the massacres of Tumbleton first and second, quite, quite likely. So plenty of red flags. But even just being half-brother to Lord Unwin Peak is a huge red flag of its own, even though House Peak doesn't feature any red. So we went to Red Robert to red flags. Unwin forms the Caltrops with 12 other Reach Lords. Lord Peak just murders one of them during an argument, if you recall. And I wonder if one of the reasons he felt comfortable doing that was because Mervyn was standing there backing him up. It's really easy to throw your weight around and just murder people when you don't fear the consequences because you've got a big brute standing behind you ready to back your play. So all these red flags are not misplaced. Though he's another example of what appears to be bastardishal prejudice. I just made that word up. That's right, bastardishal mm -hmm. prejudice. That line about being quick to anger and seeing slights where none had been intended sounds like just a maester editing a narrative, projecting common beliefs about bastards. Nina says, although Gildane later goes on to say that none of this suggested that Flowers was the sort of monster who could take a sleeping child from her bed and throw her to a grisly death, she thinks Fire and Blood has a distinctly pro-Unwin leaning at certain points, so it doesn't surprise her that Gildane would be unwilling to condemn Unwin's personal cat's paw or potential cat's paw and half-brother for the crime of killing Jahera or allowing her to be murdered by another. But I'm, I'm with Nina here. I don't, I, I think that Plenty of this suggests that Flowers was the type of monster that could throw a sleeping child. Like, I don't agree with that conclusion at all from Gildane. And if he truly did sleep with some highborn ladies, that might come out in Fire and Blood too if he had bastards with them. If not, yeah. But one of those names was Cassandra Barath, 
he almost certainly did sleep with her. Well, he names her anyway, but she'd had no children. So there, no bastard came from that union. She was Aegon II's wife and Aegon couldn't consummate. So this is kind of like a creepy, maybe like he was using his king's guard to, yeah, let's, you get the picture. We don't need to illuminate that picture fully there, do we? Actually, Nina corrects me. They didn't actually marry. Cassandra and Aegon were betrothed. They never technically married. But yeah, he wouldn't have been able to consummate it anyway. And it was a particularly bastardful Kingsguard. Yes, bastardishal is the word now, and so is bastardful, because there were a lot of bastards in this particular Kingsguard. And unfortunately, it did no favors to the cultural view of bastards, because these were not the good sort. So from Fire and Blood, quote, Having elevated Sir Marston Waters to command of the Kingsguard, Lord Peak now prevailed upon him to confer white cloaks to two of his own kin, his nephew, Sir Amory Peak of Starpike, and his bastard brother, Sir Mervyn Flowers. Now he went ham on this, Unwin did, appointing his kin to a huge number of offices. The Tyrells, the way they're slowly grabbing offices here and there at King's Landing, Unwin outdid them by a factor of two or three. He, he the Tyros did, did this with some grace, some some sneakiness. Unwin's just like, I'm appointing you here, you here, just like openly, just... <laughs> just he open. quickly peeks. Yeah, that's right. Now, of all these appointments, quote, His grace was especially unhappy with his Kingsguard. He neither liked nor trusted the two new men and had not forgotten the presence of Sir Marston Waters at his mother's death. Yeah, Sir Martian Waters just stood there, which Aegon will point out later during the resolution of the secret siege. Now, of course, the reason was like, if you've forgotten, the reason his grace can't do anything about this is because he's underage. He's b- below the age of 16, so he couldn't stop Unwin from any of this. Stories like this, they're like, I mean, I feel so bad for Aegon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like they, the way they talk about his depression and like how he must have felt so lacking in agency and power despite he should. Yeah, I feel so bad for that kid. Unwin just like saw the age 16 coming and was like, well, I'm going to strip away as much power from this king as possible before yeah, that. Yeah. And he'll be able to hold on to it even after he comes of age. And <sighs> thankfully for the king, Unwin was gone by then, not dead. And he was still affecting things. But his, his grip on the throne lessened significantly when he came of age, or a little before that, I suppose. So yeah, Aegon was particularly unhappy with his king's guard. Marston Waters, being Lord Commander, presided over his mother's death. He didn't like Mervyn Flowers. He didn't like Sir Armory Peak. And of course, the, the obvious influence of Unwin is overwhelming here. Picture how Alicent had Kristen Cole at her side and how he helped her enforce her will. When, she would, when two people clash about a decision, <laughs> she would come out ahead a lot of times because Kristen Cole's standing right there and, and they know that if she doesn't get her way, Kristen Cole might do something about it, right? Cersei with Robert Strong at her side. Very similar. They're not even going to test her because of this violent man at her side that has that reputation that will step up. And even she, even I can't control him. Allison doesn't say that, but that's implied, right? Hmm. So think about that. Think about Unwin Peak, who is not subtle, <laughs> who is not, oh, I don't know what he'll do. No, he'll just flat out say, get out of my way or my men will kill you. That's more like his style, I think. <laughs> So that's how Unwin, I really think that's how he carried himself around the Red Keep, just walking around with his muscle at his side in the form of Kingsguard knights loyal to him, not the royal family. Though, of course, one of his aims was to become part of the royal family. So those two things would have become blurred lines over time if he had gotten. And that meant murder. 
Because the young king already had a queen, though they were too young to produce children, and Lord Unwin intended that they never would. Queen Jahara went out the window and fell to her death. Pushed? Jumped? We don't know, but, quote, Lord Peak could not have pushed the child from the window himself, to be sure, as he was elsewhere in the city when she died. But the king's guard posted at the queen's door that night was Mervyn Flowers, his bastard brother. Mm. Could he have been the hand's cat's paw? It is more than possible, particularly in light of later events. So yeah, referring to that earlier quote, the sources in Fire and Blood say they don't, they admit Mervyn Flowers doesn't seem like a good man, but they don't think he's capable of child murder. But again, I, I don't agree with that at all. Secondar- secondarily, it's easy to get a murderer past him, right? Via the front door <laughs> with mm-hmm. Unwin's permission or... Well, this is the Red Keep we're talking about. With all the secret tunnels around, it's not a place you should just go blame the guy at the door. <laughs> you know, like, that's not exactly fair. I, I, I am highly suspicious, of course. I mean, but he had all the reasons. This is the Red it. Keep we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, he had the motivation. Yeah, he did have the motivation. He had, yeah. So it's, I do blame him, but if this wasn't the Red Keep, we could be like 100%. With, with the Red, given it's the Red Keep, maybe we should say 99%. He, another thing he did was he cut off the ear of a young squire just for protecting his lord. Even all he did was draw his sword. He didn't swing it at anybody. He didn't cut anybody. He didn't hurt anybody. But Mervyn Flowers said, "I, you know, I'm going to teach him a lesson that you shouldn't bear steel against the king's guard." This was during the, you know, a coup. So like, whoa. So when his role in the secret siege and the possible murder of Jahara and the plot to murder Lara Rogari, Viserys's wife, came to light, his own lord commander. And fellow bastard Marston Waters came to confront him and arrest him, which is kind of like Marston being like, yeah, I was always with the good guys. Mm, We'll examine him another day, but quite likely he just flipped because he saw which way the tide was turning and was like, well, I'm going to, so you bad guy, Mervyn, you know, and Mervyn's probably like, what? You and I were in this together. Uh Mervyn made it look like he was going to surrender, but then he grabbed his dagger and stabbed Waters in the belly and then tried to get away, killing a few more innocents in the in the process, like some stable hands and things like that. He was caught, though, and overwhelmed and beaten to death while still wearing his white cloak. He probably would have run for Starpike, I guess, probably hoping Unwin would give him shelter, although Unwin would probably have had to ship him off to Essos to get him away. Kind of like the, that one Baratheon brother. And that is the end of Mervyn Flowers. A man who was also overwhelmed and beaten, but not to death, is our next subject. The character that's very well covered as is more about him than a lot of the others, but we've already sort of well covered him. So we're not going to rehash too much, but we want to bring him into the fold here. He absolutely belongs. He's not in the King's Guard, but in our head canon, we think he will be when it's all said and done. This is Glendon Flowers. We cover him very thoroughly in the Mystery Night episodes, but he deserves a little extra focus here for a couple of minutes. Again, he believes his father was Fireball, aka Quentin Ball. This is not super likely, but it is possible. His mother was named Penny Jenny, but she died when he and his sister were young. His sister, in turn, slept with a knight named Sir Morgan Dunstable, the first man she ever slept with, in exchange for knighting young Glendon. Not the most romantic story ever for a knighting, but it is, in a sense, his sister did something very big gift to give for him, you know? And I kind of wonder what happened to her. You know, does does Glendon, he he would think he would care for her if she's still around, but we don't really know where she is these days. 
He's still very young, and the Duncan Egg stories, hopefully we get more of them, and he's traveling with them as of the end of the Mystery Night, so it's quite possible he's with them for a while. Maybe his sister makes an appearance. We get her name for something. But that's kind of why we see him maybe joining the Kingsguard one day, because his father was promised a spot in the Kingsguard. The guy he thinks is his father. The guy he claims is his father anyway. And he's getting close with the future Lord Commander of the future King. So it's easy to see how he could end up in Egg's Kingsguard, right? Like, yeah. it's, it's a natural fit. A lot of time has to pass before that could happen. Maybe something a little tragic will happen to Glendon before. But, but I think it'd be real satisfying. It would be real satisfying. So you can see why we're hopeful for that. We're optimistic this is how it goes for Glendon. He says, I am Glendon Ball, not Glendon Flowers. He gets angry. They mock him. We saw how that bastard chip on his shoulder drove him. (laughs) The maester says, like so many bastards, quick to anger, quick to hear insult where there wasn't one. That that does apply to Glendon Flowers. (laughs) It absolutely does apply to him. But he's one of these guys that you can say that you feel angry about the way you're treated and you take that energy and you turn it into something positive. Some people sit there and they seethe and and it breaks them. The weight of that prejudice of that hate, of that unfair treatment, it breaks them. And I don't blame them. It's a huge burden. What? Who am I to judge that? I, I don't face that burden. But some people, and this is something that a, a lot of us respect for good reason, they take that prejudice and they channel the anger they feel over it into something productive. It's in a, it's a lyric from a Rage Against the Machine song. Channel that hate to productive. <laughs> That's what he did. He took the hatred and he made himself a great warrior. He's, he, you can see him channeling it during the tournament. Like, I'm going to show them what I'm made of. He's so determined. Can't get that kind of determination from other places. Like, you, the privileged upbringing doesn't bring that. You might still have a high level of motivation after a privileged upbringing, but it's not going to be because of this. It's not going to be that burning desire to prove you're more than people say you are. Because... If you're born a Tyrell, you're already up there, right? <laughs> right? So anyway, so the slights are intended often. Yes, sometimes slights aren't intended and he sees them, but sometimes they're absolutely intended, like being called the Knight of the Pussy Willows. Everyone laughed at him. That was, of course, they was on purpose. They were trying to mock him. The flowers I feel the most sorry for is definitely Falia flowers, but the one I like the most might be Glen- Sir Glendon, excuse me. He is knighted. Whether or not he's a ball or not, he's definitely knighted. So may he join Egg's Kingsguard, oh, GRRM, even though that may mean he dies at Summerhall or something awful like that. But hey, all men must die. The last we saw, he was headed north with Duncan Egg. We're very confident they'll get to Winterfell. Not so sure they'll go all the way to the wall. They might, and we will today in this episode after our break here. A word from our friends at Smile Brilliant. They've been sponsoring us throughout the year. We're very appreciative of that. And and their products are really good. So that's a a wonderful (laughs) bonus. I have been going through my whitening process. I'm now two-thirds of the way through. If you're watching live, you can might be able to tell. My teeth are definitely whiter. At first, when you're going through a whitening process, you start to kind of tell yourself, you're like, am I, are my teeth getting whiter? Or am I just kind of imagining it? Because it's so gradual. But now I'm far enough in, I can tell. I can definitely tell. And when it's done, there will be some pictures. Yeah. 20% off is what you save if you use the code Westeros at smilebrilliant.com on their entire suite of products. It's so important to take care of your teeth. You can either pay a little now or a lot later. It's just one of the best examples of that concept. Preventative maintenance now 
or pay for all the things that go wrong because you didn't maintain later, given that you got to pay, may as well save 20% while you're at it. There's no reason to pay the maximum. Save as much as you can on what is admittedly a somewhat expensive overall cost, taking care of your teeth, your mouth, your gums, all that. It can add up. But by taking the right steps, by being smart about it, by a little bit of planning, you can cut back on those expenses. A good way to start off, once again, 20% off using the code Westeros at smilebrilliant.com on any of their products, whether it's the grinding of your teeth, whether you want to whiten your teeth, whether it's just the basic day-to-day cleaning. They've got, they've got products for all those needs and more. So check it out. Also want to remind you all of the awesome episode searcher that Ashea has continued to fine tune over the years. We can pretty much call it episode searcher 2.0 now, I guess. It's far enough along from its initial iteration that I'd say it's worthy of a a new title. It's not 1.1 or 1.4. This is 2.0. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. It's still got a lot of changes. We'll be at like 10.0 before I'm happy with it. (laughs) That's how I feel. But yes, I am working on it and I'm trying to make it even better. But for now, if you are a patron, you can get access to it and have our whole database available to you, which could be very useful, especially if you're like, I really want to find that one episode that had... Mary and Clint from Learn Hands and you can't find it easily, but you can just go to that and just look through guests. And I don't know, there's a lot of ways it could be useful to you. Absolutely. Like one thing is if we're having about to have a guest on, especially if they're a return guest, you might be like, well, I missed the first time. Yeah. Kavita, for example. Yeah. You might want to check that out. Yeah. The episode she was on was a preview episode for House of the Dragon. So a lot of y'all might not have caught that because it was the preview episodes are only in the limelight for about 48 hours before the next House of the Dragon (laughs) episode drops. And then it's kind of a lot of it's a little bit past the point of um, off its shelf life already. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so that's a great point. If you are a subscriber to us outside of Patreon, if you sent a donation or if you are a Spotify subscriber, email us and we will send you the link to the episode searcher. Every week that goes by, it gets to be a little bit harder to search our back catalog. Yeah. And we're just trying to do something about that because the different platforms, Spotify, YouTube and, and iTunes and all that, none of them have a great solution for this or or any solution for yeah, this Yeah, really this any point. solution. Yeah, like, I, guess, thing, I guess YouTube has playlists. YouTube has playlists, which is the closest thing, but yeah, no, that, even that great. is yeah. woefully incomplete. <laughs> Next up, we have wallflowers. Counting flowers on the wall. That don't bother me at all. That's the Statler Brothers. Huge thought I'd use Actually, song. real quick. Yeah. Before we go on, yeah, someone had a good, a good comment about the idea of if, if Blendon Paul dies... At Summer Hall, mm-hmm. he'd die in a ball of fire. Oh, my God. From Jack It would be Egg. green fire, but still. Yeah, green fire. But I just <laughs> so, had to point that out before we moved on. That's yes, a good wallflowers, one. which I really appreciated is he's referring <laughs> to wallflowers because we are going to talk about Wally's flowers eventually. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you thought I'd use a song by the actual band, The Wallflowers, but no. Counting flowers on the wall. We clearly we could have called these black flowers, too. You know, because yeah. they're Night's Watch, Black Brothers. But I couldn't resist the chance to call them wallflowers. <laughs> Especially given the whole blue rose growing in the wall imagery. That's that's a snow, not a flowers, but it's a flower <laughs> in the ice. I So still, I say, still, it fits. Especially since Sean Snow himself is also on the wall. He is the blue flower growing in the wall. In command of bastards from all regions, which probably matters to them, like it did for Damon Blackfire. There's a certain way in which bastards are uniquely treated in the Seven Kingdoms, after all. 
Nina writes that Night's Watch also provides a more open and therefore ostensibly easier opportunity for bastards to make notable professional careers for themselves. There can only be seven knights of the King's Guard at any given time, and they're supposed to be the seven best knights in the entire kingdom. The maesters will only pass those who show aptitude at various subjects of knowledge, and the faith's internal organization and opportunities for advancement, especially after the end of the faith militant, are far from clear. But the wall accepts literally anyone and has many different positions. Rangers for the more martial, builders for the non-martial physically strong, and stewards for those who may have more intellectual, administrative, and or organizational abilities. The flowers who shows up on the wall can still make something of himself, rising by ability and the support of his brothers to become a high-ranking officer or even Lord Commander. Yeah, we mentioned this with Damon Blackfire, but he was a living legend, and a lot of those he inspired probably did so at a distance, maybe meeting him briefly once or twice if they were lucky. But the Night's Watch is, despite all the larger sets of opportunities, the depth of type of an organization and different skill sets required, it is a smaller, more intimate organization. This would still apply even though there's all these different castles, different people around. Like, John hasn't met all the people from the Shadow Tower, even though he's their Lord Commander. But still, they know who he is. They know, based on his name, that he's a bastard from the North. And any other bastards over there might think, all right, cool. You know, that's one of ours, getting, getting that top spot. Nina also writes, I bet there might have been a number of flowers at the wall after the first and maybe also third Blackfire rebellions because of the supporters of Damon Blackfire who survived and bent the knee would have a lot of them been sent to the wall. And some of them couldn't have been ransomed by their family members because they were broke afterwards or the ransoms may have been set really high in some cases to, to get them away, to maybe intend to get them to send to the wall. You know, I'll put a really high ransom on this one. Maybe they'll just not be able to afford it and that'll get this guy to the wall, which is where I want him. <laughs> but still, that said, John was mocked for being a bastard on the wall right away. Even though it's a place where your past and birth aren't supposed to matter, clearly does. Even in the very, very first scene, we see Waymar Royce get a job leading that he didn't deserve because of his family, right? And it wasn't even asked for. Mormont just felt like he kind of had to because he wanted to make sure we kept, he kept coming support from these houses. Like, well, if I offend them, then they don't ship us more men and more uh, swords and coins or whatever. All, just, they need everything. Food, whatever they're going to send, they need it. So uh, they don't push back maybe against the treatment of bastards or anyone on the wall because they need the support of these noble houses in ways that they don't like to admit. Your past isn't supposed to matter, but it does. That's a target, not a goal. It's not the reality, right? It's just something, it's, it's marketing. <laughs> But to be fair, it does matter less on the wall, but it still does matter. I mean, Alistair Thorne maybe is a severe example because he really hated John in particular, not just bastards. But I think that it's probably both. Rusty Flowers is our next bastard on the wall, our first wallflower. Like Red Robert Flowers, Rusty suggests another color apart from the Night's Watch rather than black. And he's the only character named Rusty in all the books. No Rusties in Fire and Blood, no other Rusties in A Song of Ice and Fire. His house doesn't come up. There's no sigil or colors to help narrow it, down, narrow it down, which is kind of the way of the Night's Watch. The Night's Watch does kind of appropriately obscure their, their birth house. And the Night's Watch is also even less adorned than the Kingsguard. The Kingsguard also is supposed to get their family, but we know they, they have their pins that kind of denote what house they came from. And John trusts him. 
That alone says a lot. And why does John trust him? Well, it's, it's because he has him with him at least one time that it really matters, where he can only have trusted men around him. We'll, we'll have the quote here in just a second. Setting that up, it's not just what that John trusts him, it's what he trusts him for specifically, the specific action that John brings him in to help him with, which is that when John goes to confront Janos Slint about his refusal, Janos' refusal to follow orders in the matter of taking over Castle Greyguard, he brings back up big men he trusts. Quote, John found Slint breaking his fast in the common room. Sir Alistair Thorne was with him and several of their cronies. They were laughing about something when John came down the steps with Iron Emmett and Dolorous Ed, and behind them, Mully, Horse, Red Jack Crab, Rusty Flowers, and Owen the Oaf. Three Finger Hob was ladling out porridge from his kettle. Queen's men, King's men, and Black Brothers sat at their separate tables, some bent over bowls of porridge, others filling their bellies with fried bread and bacon. John saw Pip and Gren at one table, Bowen Marsh at another. The air smelled of smoke and grease, and the clatter of knives and spoons echoed off the vaulted ceiling. All the voices died at once. Lord Janos, John said, I will give you one last chance. Put down that spoon and get to the stables. I have had your horse saddled and bridled. It is a long, hard road to Greyguard. Then you had best be on your way, boy, Slint laughed, dribbling porridge down his chest. Greyguard's a good place for the likes of you, I'm thinking, well away from decent godly folk. The mark of the beast is on you, bastard. You are refusing to obey my order? You can stick your order up your bastard's arse said Slint, his jowls quivering. Man, you really just fit the character, Jano. Slint so well, Aziz. You <laughs> <Damn>. just... <laughs> Were my jowls quivering when I said that? Yeah, I looked over, I was quivering away. <laughs> what a great moment, though. That is such a powerful scene. You know what happens next, too. You know where it goes. It involves Slint losing his head with some great dialogue and Owen the Oaf getting his boots with some less great dialogue, but very entertaining. Notice how John's bastardy and religion is where Slint aims his verbal blows, his prejudice. He expects other people to agree with him. Easy to miss how that insult, bastard, also lands on Rusty Flowers. It wasn't directed at him, but he uses bastard as an insult when Rusty Flowers, also a bastard, is standing right there. Yet no one else in John's crew of eight is. So it would be singularly pointed at him and John. So John and Rusty have something important in common. I think that matters. I mean, John, amongst finding people he can trust on the wall, the day in to day out, the people he'd learned that he can count on, these two have a starting point, something, a basis. It's not the best thing to have in common because it's a thing you get treated negatively over, but that's a bonding thing. You can bond over, hey, yeah, we were both treated the same way by our family. Yeah, you know how it is. This is something that only they would know. Like a lot of other people on the wall would not have had that experience. It's very unique sort of yeah, some of them were lower born than them, so they have their own upbringing things that were negative for them or challenges they had to face. But there's something unique about being raised in a noble household while being excluded from that. You're so close to it, yet so far from it. And there's also benefits, of course, as, as what's-his-face, the armorer, die, what's-his-name? <laughs> Donald Noy. Donald Noy, yeah, Donald Noy. That's, yeah, that's right. I was like, who are you talking about? Oh. <laughs> he taught, taught John about his own privilege. Like, look, you got trained at a castle. And Rusty may have as well. So that's just something kind of unique they have in common. 
Given that Rusty was brought in as muscle, though, that also implies he's a big man. Since he's a big dude brought in as muscle, he maybe got less mocked for being a bachelor to his face than John did. <laughs> you know, people don't, when you're a big man, you don't get mocked to your, to your face as much. Maybe behind his back, sure, who knows. But, you know, maybe he was mocked when he was a boy, before he was large. His family might have mistreated him when he was five years old. He may have been large for five, but still small, you know. <laughs> Maybe he committed a crime. Maybe he joined on his own. We have no idea. Maybe he was coerced into joining like Sam. We don't even know how old he is. So a lot of guesses here. He might have been, he might have needed to suggest, maybe it's even possible he joined the Night's Watch as long ago as, the, as Robert Trebellion. I tend to feel like John's men are more of hit close to his age, but they don't all have to be. Next is Jay for Flowers. Like Rusty, we have no real idea which house he's a bastard of other than the obvious narrowing down to the reach. See, just as Rusty was trusted by John, or is trusted by John, Benjamin trusted Jay for Flowers. Think of how tight Corn Half End's ranging group was. Jay for Flowers was part of Benjamin's picked squad, ranging with him and six others. That's right, Benjamin's group was seven strong. Him and Author seemed to be the two that almost escaped. Jayfer and Author were the two bodies found near the wall, the ones that were brought into the wall that later rose in the night, and John saved. Uh, Lord Commander from Author. And it's Author's axe that appeared to have killed Jafer. Since Author was a dormant white and so was Jafer, that may explain his death. Author, i.e., Author died while they were escaping. Maybe he was already wounded and then he died and then rose in the night and slew his former companion. Which implies Jafer was the last survivor of Benjamin's party. Unless, of course, Author was not dead when he slew Jafer, in which case. Jafer was the one to turn into a white first, and that's why Author axed him. <laughs> but the evidence is stronger that Jafer was the last survivor because there wasn't any other fit mortal wound on Jafer. There's just the big axe blow. So what stopped him the second time if he rose and attacked his friends? It's also Jaffer's hand that travels all the way to King's Landing in a jar with Sir Alice or Thorne, but it rots before he can get an audience with Tyrion it turns out that's because Tyrion was being petty. He was delaying Sir Alistair indefinitely, in part because he didn't know how he was going to handle Sir Alistair in court with this hand and like, what's he going to do? If he takes it seriously, it looks bad for him. If he takes it not seriously, it looks... Yeah, he just didn't know how to do it, but he also kind of liked being petty to Alistair because of what Alistair was to him. But that's still kind of a minor tragedy, isn't it? Because it, it was a chance for maybe the information about what's happening on the wall to get to somebody that would actually care, Tyrion. But unfortunately, even though it was clever for G.R. Mormont to send Alistair away from Castle Black because of his fight with Jon, he was the absolute wrong choice to treat with Tyrion, given Tyrion's already existing history with Sir Alistair. To be fair to G.R., he didn't know Tyrion would be the one <laughs> in charge. <laughs> he didn't know Tyrion would be acting hand at that time. So a lot, which enhances the tragedy of it all. Tragedy often is circumstantial. Though he's not on the wall, it's in his name, so let's talk about Wally's flowers. And he served in the North, so it's close to the wall. <laughs> his mother was a high tower, and his father was an archbaster. So that's a little unusual. It's usually the father that is the source of the noble blood, or both. And that's kind of, the reasons are kind of obvious why, but I'll explain them anyway. Noblemen can get away with sleeping around far easier than, well, than anyone, right? It's not just noble women, it's anyone, other than nobles with even more power, right? The proximity is at least easy to understand. The Citadel and the High Tower, 
right? That that part fits. I wonder what the Lord Hightower of the, th- of the time thought of this scandal. This isn't just a maester, it's an archmaester, but it would be his daughter. I don't know. How does he handle this? No idea. The prevailing theory in the fandom is that the archmaester father here is Walgrave, the senile one Pate steals from. Their names are similar and the timeline does support it, but it's still a little bit of a stretch, but it's kind of because we have nothing else to go on. Yeah, I think the name being... I don't know. I think it's kind of very pointed to me. Yeah. Like we have this mystery of Walgrave having had a lover. Like, I don't know. Yeah. It fits. It's just... It feels like a thin amount of It doesn't have to be the case, but like... If we if we're never gonna know one way or another, like it's one of those where like if you want to believe that this is true because it gives it more depth to you or, or adds whatever. It's I, the best theory we have. Yeah. I don't know that we're ever gonna find out anything more about Walgrave and or about Wall, you know what I mean? Like yeah. we just might not know. We might not, yeah, we might not know. But the Citadel arc is kind of just starting. It may not be a very long one, but we are gonna get more chapters at the Citadel from Sam and yeah, who knows? We'll see. It, it could happen. So this one is sort of different, too, from our other examples. Most of our other examples, because he's a maester, not some sort of warrior. Nevertheless, at least one person blames him for a lot of violence. This is the grayest and or rattiest of the gray rats, if we can believe Lady Barbary Dustin, which we shouldn't entirely, though we should partially. It's a bit of a trick or a challenge to figure out exactly what's true and what isn't. But the problem is, Lady Dustin's very biased here. She claims Wallace led Lord Rickard Stark into many of his bad decisions regarding the South. So this character is at the heart of many of the theories in the Northern conspiracy genre, and partly because of Lady Dustin. This bothers me. (laughs) This is a recurring trait of the nobility that they all hold themselves in such high esteem and above everyone else that if there's a problem, it must be a subordinate and not the decision maker, not the person who actually has the final responsibility. She blames the maester? Not the Lord who has the final say? Come on. <laughs> Come on. This is... Uh, that annoys me when the decision maker doesn't get the blame. <laughs> it's like, no, the advisor is like, what? The maester gets the blame? Come on, Lady Dustin. <laughs> uh-huh. But if she's right, or at least partially right, because maybe he lied. Maybe he made up data. Maybe he invented things to encourage Lord Ricard to make decisions. That, I would agree, is cause for censure, cause for criticism. That is That does put a lot of the burden on him. It still puts some of it on Ricard for not like double checking or what have you, but you're supposed to be able to trust your maester. I kind of get, I can kind of get maybe that going over his head. But again, back to the Lady Dustin's side, she's making him sound like some kind of maesterly bittersteel. Like, oh, he kept pouring poison into Damon's ear until he rebelled and yeah, it was the whispers of bitter steel that caused, like, yeah, this is the maester bitter steel here. <laughs> so I think she's exaggerating Wallace's role, but maybe it's very specific where her grudge comes from. Remember, a big part of her grudge is that she didn't get to marry Brandon Stark. She may blame Wallace Stark for that, or Wallace, <sighs> the maester Wallace for that decision on Rickard's part as well. So maybe Wallace is the one who said, no, Brandon needs to marry Catelyn. He needs to marry Tully given the what's happening out in the world. But maybe she just perceives that. Maybe that is full headcanon on her part. Maybe she just completely invented that in her head and Wally's just, the most he did was like, help the maester weigh the choices and, and or help the Lord make the choices. And she might be greatly exaggerating what he did. Anyway, let's take a look at her quote 
just to see where she's at here. Let's let's kind of revisit it. Before he forged his chain, Maester Wallace had been known as Wallace Flowers. Flowers, hill, rivers, snow. We give such names to baseborn children to mark them for what they are, but they are always quick to shed them. Wallace Flowers had a Hightower girl for a mother and an Archmaester of the Citadel for a father, it was rumored. The gray rats are not as chaste as they would have us believe. Old Town Maesters are the worst of all. Once he forged his chain, his secret father and his friends wasted no time dispatching him to Winterfell to fill Lord Rickard's ears with poisoned words as sweet as honey. The Tully marriage was his notion, never doubt it. He, she broke off as Roose Bolton rose to his feet, pale eyes shining in the torchlight. George got us with the old interruption trick again. Damn you. <laughs> he knows <laughs> that one. Earlier, she implies he was in, he was, or in that quote earlier, she implies he was hiding his bastard heritage. Was he? I mean, he joined the Maesters. And that's, that's yeah. just how it works. Like, she's implying that he joined the Maesters just to hide his, or that was a major incentive for him. He's like, ooh, that's a way for me to hide my heritage. Like, she says that because she thinks it's a thing you should hide. Her prejudice is just really overflowing here. She's both prejudiced against this particular Maester and Maesters in general. So it's, it's kind of a double win. The bitterness, the prejudice, it's all on display here. And, but she did some digging to find out who he is. Like, how hard could that have been? Like, I don't think it was really that big a secret, Lady Dustin. <laughs> <laughs> like, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. That's so funny. There definitely, I can think of some times where I've seen people that are like, have some conspiracy theory. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> it's obvious. Yeah. <laughs> we all know. Yeah, like, uh, <gasps> oh, no, I can get the high towers wanting to hide that because it's a high town. They're like, yeah, we're hiding that, that our daughter had this kid. High tower, not hide tower. Yeah, hide tower. <laughs> <laughs> but they're hiding, but they were, they, they would want to hide that their daughter had this kid, not so much that this kid exists because he is a maester, you know, and it just flowers. That's, it doesn't, Again, we face this problem. The last name Flowers doesn't suggest Hightower. It suggests Hightower is one of hundreds of possibilities at best, you know? And look at that prejudice, the way she phrases it. We, we give them those names to mark them for what they are. Like, oof, that language is just rough, Lady Dustin. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that is, ouch. Yeah, so it's hard to take, because of the extreme dose of prejudice here, it's hard to take all of this at face value. Like, she could be exaggerating. She could be putting the blame on the maester when really Lord Rickard was all about it. And it was his notion, you know, he's like, actually, I want I think, what about a Tully marriage? And Wally Flowers is like, actually, that's not a bad idea, sir. Mm, probably you like, know? Yeah, Rickard was like, that Barbary, Barbary is real bitter. Yeah. I don't like her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very, very one-sided take here from her. So we really have to take it with a grain of salt. But, but we should not discard it. I'm not saying throw it away. Don't no. throw away the take. But give it the proper context. I do hope we learn more about this situation either through the Northern stuff or through the Southern stuff. Both of them are possible because Lady Dustin could talk about this guy some more for some reason or a different person could. When did Wally's flowers die? Like Maester Lewin, I guess, took over for him. Probably. But there could have been another Maester in between, but probably not. Probably not. Lewin's probably been there a while. Lewin delivered Catelyn's children. I mean, yeah, he's probably been there for a while. It probably went Lewin. It probably went directly from Wally's flowers to Lewin. So yeah, there may be more for us to hear about it. Maybe other, someone else at Winterfell could have, might have a take on him. I'm not sure who. But most, <laughs> of the, most of Winterfell was killed by Theon and Ramsay, but not everyone. 
We'll see. We'll see. Next up, we have Flower Flowers, a pair of Tyrells who are, of course, already ripped by the flower, the famous Golden Rose. Apparently, and appropriately, like so many other characters here today, these two are set to join an organization, and it even matches their house colors. How perfect, which is kind of meta. They get to sneak right in. It's like they fit right in. The Tyrells taking over so many organizations, getting their fingers in so many different places, their thumbs on so many different scales, and just grabbing offices, titles, and power wherever they can until, as a whole, they have the most of it. Garth's Flowers, elder son of Garth the Gross. Garth the Gross is mocked for his flatulence, but he was Seneschal of Highgarden for a long time, which cannot be an easy job. He must have some administrative skills, or they just have someone really bad in charge. But I suspect the former, not the latter. That doesn't mean his sons have any of these skills at all, but given their father is esteemed in the family, they rise with him to a certain degree, and more so because it doesn't seem like he has trueborn children. We don't know of any other children of Garth, so he only has these two bastard sons, and they seem to follow him around. They might be a little like his muscle, like Unwin Peak, although he's nothing like Unwin Peak as far as we know. Just kind of in the, it's smart to have muscle with you, not in the muscle can be used to intimidate people in doing what you want. Although there may be some of that angle to it as well. I'm not sure. For example, though, first of all, these two are probably knights because they're Tyrell-ish <laughs> and they're indicated to be warriors. For example, when Garth was going to go to King's Landing, the two sons, Garth and Garrett, were going to join with him, come with him, and join the gold cloaks. So... Yeah, being at court brings opportunity. If Garth the Gross goes to court to be master of coin and your cousin is the queen, your other cousin is the hand, yeah, you're, or that's your nephew, actually. Garth the Gross's nephew is Mace Tyrell. So very close to the queen, the hand. Yeah, now if you're Garth or Garrett, your father is now master of coin or is about to be and your cousin is hand, your other cousin is queen. There's a lot of opportunity there for you, you might think. Even if they look down on you as a bastard, you know, they still, there's so many offices and titles, they still would have something for you, even if it's just officers in the gold cloaks, which, you know, doesn't sound so fancy next to queen and hand of the king, but it's something. So Garrett Flowers is the younger of the two. If people don't trust a bastard brother because they usurp their trueborn brothers, and younger brothers also sometimes usurp their eldest. What does that say about a younger bastard brother? Is he doubly untrustworthy in the eyes of some? This is the first pair of bastard brothers we've had today. I think it's the more unlikely to be the inverse that you put next, which is that maybe he's more trustworthy than his older brother because there's no title for him to usurp. He's so far down the line of succession. Uh, it's almost like, well, this uh, guy, yeah. what is, what's the point? You know, yeah. unless he's got that like, Little Walder attitude, big Walder, you know, that I'm 42nd in line, but I'm going to yeah. be there. I'm going to get there. Like, yeah. whoa. <laughs> like, okay, dude. <laughs> that doesn't see, most people probably aren't like him, you know? So yeah, mm -hmm. what inheritance is there to usurp? Are there, yeah, like there's no land. There might be some wealth, but that doesn't pass like land. In other words, wills, you know, can be divided more equitably when it's coins, you know? <laughs> it isn't just all for one. So I'm curious how Garth and Garrett get along, or if they don't. And that would be more interesting, maybe, from a story perspective, if they don't. But as the sons of Garth the Gross, yeah, there's more to the story. Let's get into the gold cloak aspect of this, which is funny because of their sigils, right? Bastard sigils are reversed. Tyrells have gold roses on green, so a bastard Tyrell would have green roses on gold, 
A gold cloak matches them perfectly. In a symbolic way, they're kind of camouflaged. Their thorns are concealed beneath their cloaks. Tyrell's just planting more flowers here and there, watching them grow in the direction they want. Mm-hmm. Watered with blood. Another angle to consider here is something Cersei is and was concerned about, which was the growing power of these Tyrells, how they snatch up so many offices and titles, and then they push the limits of the authority granted them by those new offices and titles and use those powers and those offices, of course, for the benefit of House Tyrell. Humorously, it was Tywin who invited Garth (laughs) the Gross to take Tyrion's place as Master of Coin, but Cersei canceled that on Tywin's death only to appoint Sir Giles Rosby, who has now passed on in his right, and is replaced by Sir Harry Swift, who is terrible at his job, and probably most other jobs as well. So Garth didn't come to King's Landing after all, though Mace is still pushing for his appointment. He still is like, Harry Swift is bad. Let's have someone else in this job. But Cersei seems to have regained some measure of control, so she may be able to hold Mace off on that. We'll see. Let's not remind Tywin of that one variation on the Land the Clever origin story, though. The same story that leads us to denote all the Reach houses as the seed of bastards, given Garth Greenhands impregnating all the women of the Reach back in the day. One of the stories says that Land the Clever was one of those bastards, a bastard son of Floris the Fox or Rowan Goldtree. Now, they don't believe that in the West, but they do in the Reach, at least in some places. So while we're not going to have a section dedicated to Land the Clever because he's a big enough topic, we've talked about him in our Castly Rock episode. We won't explicitly add him to the list of famous bastards from the Reach, but keep him in mind. He's got a foot in there. He might be a famous bastard of the Reach. No one ever called him Land Flowers. Maybe Flowers wasn't the title for Reach bastards back then, as we said before. But he belongs in this conversation. And if he is truly a Reach bastard, he's one of the most famous of all, even though his ultimate end was nothing to do with the Reach. But the many children of Garth Greenhand brings us right on back to the Tyrells and their political encroachment. The many children of House Tyrell. Because part of the reason they're able to encroach so much at King's Landing is there's so many of them. (laughs) You can't appoint all your friends and family to offices if you don't have that many friends and family. <laughs> it's yeah. nepotism on a grander scale because there's so many Tyrells. The La- even the yes. Lannisters can't do this unless right. they start including the Lannisters of Lannisport because that actually then they maybe could. Yeah, this makes me think of, you remember my most iconic Crusader Kings 2 game ever, <laughs> which is so where I, pu- I, I just kept breeding Tyrells and I put a Tyrell in every Lord Paramountcy. There was the Tyrell of the North, of the West. Of the, I was just everywhere. We counted. At one point, there were over 700 Tyrells. Yeah. So and like, a I, third of them looked Targaryen. Yeah. So I, I can really <laughs> see how like, yeah, you could really do a lot with it. There's a lot of them out there that really breed like bunnies. Like rabbits. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like flowers. Yeah, like flowers. Like, really. Like, yeah, flower like flowers. is kind of inappropriate. Yeah, they are flowering. <laughs> they are growing strong and all that. Yeah. <laughs> There's so many of them grow. It doesn't take that much to get them all growing. Like, yeah. <laughs> they work They work well as a group. They look great as a group. Like a single flower looks awesome, but like a field of golden roses, that looks awesome. Right? <laughs> That's what they're going for. Sewn together like a cloak. Like Loris had a cloak of golden roses. I mean, yeah. A small group of flowers looks great too. A bouquet. A, a bouquet, yeah. yeah. You're right. Big so, hint. Any size. <laughs> yeah. Any size. One, two, three, twelve. I love flowers. Wow. (laughs) Is a Shea? I don't understand what a Shea is saying here. I I 
There is no hinting going on. Here at all. <laughs> I'll, I'll just let me just move on obliviously here. So yeah, and the Fraser maybe another one that come to mind that could and have tried to grab a lot of offices at once. They're not having as much success with that, but they could, given how many of them there are. They're just not. They're just not as powerful as the Tyrells. They also aren't overlords of the largest of the seven kingdoms in the reach like the Tyrells are. So yeah, the, the Tyrells are a lot more powerful than the Freys. That's kind of obvious. And a lot more attractive yeah. by average. I didn't even mention Loras being in the Kingsguard when I mentioned, you know, Queen Marjorie and Hand oh, Mace, yeah. you know. So, yeah. Right. And it's, and again, because there's so many of them, it's easy to miss these lesser offices that they're getting their hands on. These lesser offices can be of great importance at the right moment, right? They're not like day to day having two sons in the gold cloaks is no big deal. But Jano Slint, funny that we've had two reasons to talk about him today because he's not a reach bastard. But the city watch is a bastard. A, no, yeah, <laughs> the city watch doesn't have a lot of power normally. But when two sides are duking it out within the confines of King's Landing or the Red Keep, as discussed by Ned and Littlefinger here, quote, "I must have the gold cloaks. The city watch is two thousand strong, sworn to defend the castle, the city, and the king's peace." Ah, but when the queen proclaims one king and the hand another, whose peace do they protect? Lord Peter flicked the dagger with his finger, setting it spinning in place. Round and round it went, wobbling as it turned. When at last it slowed to a stop, the blade pointed at Littlefinger. Why, there's your answer, he said, smiling. Now let's understand what Ned got wrong here. He was not fooled by this. This part he understood very well. He understands military stuff. He can count 2,000 men on his side, basically men he couldn't lose because the Lannisters had like, 100 or 200 at most, he would easily be able to overwhelm them to the point that he didn't expect a fight, except they had those 2,000 and their 200. <laughs> That's the part Ned got wrong is those 2,000 men were not on his side. He just thought they were. So recall how important loyalty to Damon was during the Dance of the Dragons, he who gave them their gold cloaks in the first place. And when Unwin Peak was busy appointing his people all over a small council and King's Guard, he didn't put two of his men in the gold cloaks. He placed five hundred. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, like I was saying, he wasn't sneaky about this. He's like, okay, 2,000 gold cloaks. I'm going to put 500 of my men in there, a whole quarter of them. So definitely don't sleep on the importance of the Tyrells gaining influence, if not control over the city watch, because it could matter, like, the gates are being held by the city watch to an invading army like Stannis. Well, what about, all it takes is one commander loyal to the other side to open one of the seven gates and there you go and if it's not the tyrells gaining influence it doesn't have to be them it could be somebody else right someone else could get influence over the city watch and use that to take over the city like someone in aegon's group someone in young griff's group right varus finding the right person to bribe in order to get the young griff's army inside the city without having to storm the walls and losing lots of men so Ned trusting Littlefinger was a poor choice, though honestly, he might not have had many other options. Which brings us to our next character, who definitely didn't have many other options. Thalia Flowers. The poor girl that was taken by Euron. Aaron warned her not to trust Euron, but what good would it have done not to trust him? Would she have escaped? Probably not, although maybe... I think she would have just been become the bed slave to someone else then. Yeah. Like yeah, it would have exactly. just like she would just been it for like one of his his lesser underlings and just would be dead probably sooner. Not that I blame Aaron here. He's just like panicking. No, like, no, run, yeah. He's still know. saying like don't trust him. I'm like technically she could uh 
have she she could be in bed with Euron and not trust him. Whereas yeah. she clearly she's like all enamored and smitten with him. Yeah. So like you know yeah. she could be like you know she she could slit his throat like Dalton Greyjoy was killed. You know like the Red Kraken. Like she has that opportunity. Like she could kill him. But she never was gonna do that. He's she's no, like she oh, he's giving me jewels. And no, she's yeah, she would make me never have queen. Yeah. Yeah. He was she was totally besotted. Yeah. And Nina says, "Where would you even gone? Like yeah. she'd already taken Oak. She's on an island. Like." Yeah. Uh, it's not like, even if she wasn't on an island, it would have been hard to escape, but she's on an island with the Ironborn, like the c- rulers of the sea. Like she has no choice, no escape. So basically being naive made it mean, so that she's only going to suffer at the end. It's yeah, a, I mean, I, Euron's a little handsome too, is my impression. Yeah, he is. For what it's worth, like, you know, I, I, I can see how she, I mean, as we'll get into, I mean, she was like, she's literally the Cinderella story right here, right? Yeah, and like, Cinderella, yeah. I, yeah, I get why she grasped onto anything to get her out of her lot in life, even if she, like, yeah, I get it. You're totally right to bring up Cinderella because yeah, Cinderella was mistreated by her many trueborn sisters. And then the titles were turned on them all, right? And that's what happened yeah. here. And that's what drew Euron to her in the first place. Besides her beauty, like she's apparently really good looking as part of that's the first thing you're unnoticed. But she suggested because she had been made into a servant by her family that they become servants to them, which is exactly the Cinderella thing you're saying there. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's really perfect. So she is a bastard of House Hewitt, which is sort of why I put them in this group because they're vassals to the Tyrells, although (laughs) not anymore because they've been (laughs) conquered by the Ironborn. But we don't expect that to stay. Even Euron doesn't expect that to stay. Euron expects to lose the Shield Islands. It's one of his poisoned gifts given to Newt the Barber. So technically, Newt the Barber is the Lord of Oakenshield right now. But yeah, that won't last. And Phalia Flowers herself was misled by Euron's poison gifts. Poison gifts was being one of our recent episodes. Check that out if you want more on that. Euron enabled her revenge on the Hewitt family. The Hewitts were terrible to her, but they weren't psychotic. They weren't like beating her, I don't think. But it was neglect. It was really bad. It was traumatizing for sure, I would think. And structural cruelty, starved for love, starved for acceptance. Euron seized on them. He's a master at seizing on those grievances and turning them to his own ends. This was a microcosm of that. He what she didn't realize is that he was worse than them. She, it's, it's kind of it's such a cruel thing to have to be faced with. It's like, this, this guy's actually worse than the family that mistreated you all your life. Obvious misogyny here too, though. Even male bastards are given a chance to prove themselves with a sword. If she had been born a boy, the Hewitts probably would have given him a chance to sword fight. But since she was born a girl, she made a serving girl. Like, what? You know, so like she didn't even have a chance to, she could have maybe wouldn't have been good with a sword and would have ended up in the same place anyway, but she didn't even get a chance. Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, if she had been a boy, she might have been bad with a sword, but then she could have gone and been a maester or gone. Maybe the wall wouldn't have been great either, but either way, she would have had a few options, whereas, yeah, just waiting on your well-to-do siblings. It's like, because like, it's even worse to me. It's not just that she's a serving girl. It's that she's a serving girl to... Her own family. Her family, yeah. yeah. Like, that. that's what makes Oof. it, like... Yeah, because it's not like I think that necessarily, like, these nobles are owed their lot in life. Like, I don't necessarily think that, like, yeah. the classist system is right, you know? So I don't want to say, like, oh, give Falia her due. Yeah, no, I mean, that, and, yeah. and because she lives in this isolated, even for the reach, like she lives in a kind of an isolated area living with the Hewitts and on the island, right? Yeah. So 
there wouldn't be as many visitors. There wouldn't be as out, much outside culture coming in. But it's it's a she's a real even though she's our only female flowers example, she's a real example of like we saw how bad John had it, but John had it way better than this. I mean, even before Euron, like take Euron out of the equation because obviously there's no comparison if you do. Even John being stabbed to death is, <laughs> yeah. isn't as bad as this. But she serves as an example for all these other likely mistreatment of female bastards. We just don't have as many examples to go by, but we can assume that a lot of this is similar. The mistreatment that John got, yeah, nothing compared. John wasn't made into a servant, you know? None of these other ones were made into servants that we know of. Yeah, you know, I have to wonder, like, yeah, if John was a girl or whatever and Ned had brought down a little bastard girl or whatever, one, if Catelyn would have treated her poorly still, if Catelyn would have made her a ser- I'm just so curious how, like, yeah. she wouldn't have felt as threatened. It would have felt, it would. But, it's, it's a much bigger problem if Catelyn mistreats a female bastard because there's no worry about claims. Yeah, there's no worry about claims. Yeah. So, like, why? You know, she's just, just her being cruel. But and, yeah. when she sees Maya Stone, just the, the hearing her name Stone sets Catelyn off. It yeah. makes her feel guilty. She's like, because yeah. it brings her back to John. It makes, just like, it makes her feel mad and guilty because she's, yeah, part she of knows. her is mad at how she treated John. But another yeah. part of her is like, well, this is how the world works. And she's like, it just, it just sets her off. Just yeah. hearing the name Mia Stone, like meeting Mia just bought, like, it was like, bah. so Catelyn's, yeah, Catelyn's real, real wrapped up about that stuff. <laughs> so much of it's out of her control. So yeah, so Falia doesn't know, Falia's even more sheltered and not sheltered is the wrong word, but trapped in a microcosm of a, of a smaller mm-hmm. worldly view. Yeah. Yet she still serves as a great example, a tragic example of what's probably the fate. It's honestly, it is probably the fate of a lot of men who aren't good with swords. They probably do yeah. end up in similar places, like as servants or something like yeah. that. But those ones don't get mentioned in the history books and and they don't have this sort of outcome like failure would because no lord is going to go grab them. You know, like, and that's, well, there would be maybe some exceptions to like a, a, a gay lord or something like yeah, that. Yeah, no, I was like just thinking, lord. I was like thinking of satin or something. But <laughs> most of the men, most, you know, obviously most <laughs> lords are heterosexual or bisexual. Yep, more likely to happen to a woman. Most lords are bisexual. Most lords. From Aziz. <laughs> <laughs> so even more cruel here, another angle to this is that the Hewitts are going to be ransomed by the Tyrells of Highgarden from Newt the Barber. Newt the Barber kept most of them alive, or all of them alive, and so he'll get some money for that. The Tyrells as overlords, that's their responsibility, and they can afford it. <laughs> Let's be honest, the Tyrells are rich as hell. So they will definitely do that. But because Fally Flowers was taken away, she will not. She will not get ransomed. She will die, most likely alongside Aaron, strapped to the prow of the silence. And to make it even more worse, she is pregnant with Euron's bastard, who he clearly doesn't care about because he's strapped her to the prow and cut her tongue in. Yikes. Yeah. Oof. That's some bad stuff. Bad stuff indeed. I guess that would not, that would be, her child would be a pike, I guess. Yeah. But her child won't be born, most likely. Yeah. Yeah, it's like what when a is it a two bastards have a child? Is it when they're not married? Is it <laughs> I don't know how that works. <laughs> I mean, Euron's not one, but made me think of that. Our last section is called fake flowers, not the plastic variety, not the uh, Radiohead song, the steel variety, the steel flowers. Because our last example is a character who is truly just getting started in life and has a lot in common with Jon Snow. Where we started this episode with talk of him, he is where he is because of Jon Snow and his story has so much in common with him. I'm talking about Eamon, not Maester Eamon, but the child of Dalla and Mance Raider, the child with the most complicated identity. He is not truly a bastard, of course. The case of John as well, as in, might not truly be a bastard. Might just have the bastard's name to hide his identity, which 
Jon Snow may be John Targaryen or Aegon Targaryen or Aemon Targaryen or Jaehaerys. Oh, who knows? But he may not be a Snow because Dalla and Mance were married too. So Dalla and Mance's child is not a bastard by the laws and traditions of the Seven Kingdoms, even if their marriage might not be recognized in the same way. I certainly recognize it. I think most people would. But Eamon Steelsong is master, masquerading, not under his own will, but <laughs> his guardians have decided that he is was going to be swapped with Craster and Gilly's child, who were not married. And Gilly is going to tell Sam's family at Hornhill that Sam is the father. So Sam is the official father. So even though he's going to be called Eamon Steelsong or Eamon Battleborn as a nickname, as the officially, even though it's a lie, story that he's a child of a reach nobleman to maintain the charade, he would be Eamon Flowers, right? The son of Sam. Son of Sam, ooh. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> son of Sam Tarly. So he would be, yeah, he'd be Eamon Flowers. Officially, that would be his like legal name yeah, given you, yeah. the lie. Even though, yeah, he is not... Really? Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> it's so funny. Really, it's such, but... Which is so great for like, that's, that's Jon Snow too, probably. Yeah. <laughs> he's not really a bastard, but he's going to be treated like one because officially his disguise includes that title, <laughs> that name. So that's pretty cool. Good way to end it, my friends and listeners, fellow Westorians. If I miss any flowers, let us know. They're pretty sneaky. Those flowers can be hidden. You know, you never know where a flower might grow. <laughs> Wildflowers, wallflowers. Black flowers, blue flowers, red flowers. We didn't even talk about baking flour. (laughs) (laughs) We did not talk about baking. Hot pie needed to get in here somewhere, Mm. but we don't know his his origin story. Mm. (laughs) And that's true. There's a lot of people out there who are bastards that aren't noble bastards, so we don't want to leave them out, but there's too many of them, and they're a lot harder to track down. For example, Dunk is technically a bastard, most likely, but we don't know who either of his parents are. Right? Like, yeah. and I mentioned Varus earlier, probably a bastard. He's the children of slaves. Were those slaves married? Probably not. That's it's not usually how their masters allow things to go. Anyway, but we're sticking to stones and snows and hills and sands and storms and pikes and waters and rivers and the obscure other examples like of Hull or the other ones <laughs> that I'm blanking on at the moment. We will return to discuss those other ones in a future installment of Bastard Squad, as well as discussing other aspects to life as a bastard in those regions or in general. There's a lot more comparisons to make, a lot more characters to bring into the fold, because there's a lot of bastard characters in this world. We'll also, at some future point, discuss some medieval comparisons, some real-world comparisons, not just in... Europe, but places and other places as well, because that would be interesting to see. Just get an idea what that's like. Frankly, don't know what that's like. As I'm saying it, I don't know what, you know, a bastard of a Chinese emperor, what their status would be. That probably depends on the time and place and other factors. But they also would marry like 50 women at once, and those would all be legitimate. It's a whole different thing. (laughs) Anyway, and that would probably apply to some stuff in Essos as well to help us understand some of that stuff. So plenty more to go on this topic. And so many other topics that we have for you at History of Westeros. Our trivia answer. The last person with a bastard name to appear on page in A Dance with Dragons is... Jon Snow. (laughs) Kind of a trick question there. A bunch of people did guess that. And then some people got more in their head and they went and tried guessing other people. But yeah, we did get multiple people who guessed Jon. Cool. Yeah, because then there's none in Kevin's epilogue chapter. 
The chapter before that is Danny 10, which oh, the is first person I, I scrolled back to the beginning. The first person to guess was Christina K. Hey, good job, Christina K. Well done. Well done. And then Dorna Shame. And then and then some people were like, oh, well, let's yeah, they checked the book and stuff. Yeah, it's John's the stabbing chapter is the last time a snow, flowers, sand, or et cetera appears on screen. Mm. Uh, Nymeria's sand is mentioned yeah, in that's, the that's Kevin what, epilogue, but she's that, not in it. Yeah, that is why people got into the debate about what does appear mean? Because like someone else said Nymeria sand, but well, technically that, she doesn't appear. That's an astute guess, even yes. though technically not the right answer. But good job, anyone who thought of Nymeria, because she was mentioned. So that's a good call. All right. Well, once again, next week is Trial by Theory. A couple episodes we mentioned throughout along the way here. A Poison Gifts episode. Mystery Night episodes where Glendon Flowers is featured. There's lots of stuff about bastardy or just the general Dunk and Egg episodes. There's other things there because Dunk is often treated a lot like the way a bastard would be treated. Uh, there's some overlap there. Age of Heroes episodes are relevant because of Garth and some of these other folks like Land the Clever, which of course brings to mind the Casterly Rock episode mm-hmm. that we did. Probably well, some other ones as well. While you say goodbye, can I give you a cat? You could give me a cat. That would be okay. cool. Is there a cat nearby to hand Yeah, on my lap. I'm going to get up and hand you to oh. him. So you keep saying goodbye, but I'm going to stand up and Excellent. give this. Yeah, I will. Thank you to those of you who came to watch live. If you were here today, we always appreciate that. It's, it adds a bit to the discussion. Sometimes y'all catch things that we wouldn't have, and that allows us to include it in the episode, which is better than including it in a future episode. Because, hey, why not get it all in the under the umbrella it belongs in? Here's Casanova coming to get in my lap. Like a good boy. Thanks big time to Nina for all her help and takes. We, like I said at the beginning, we did a lot of looking into sigils to try to maybe figure a few of these things out for guesses and just, you know, it helps me just refresh myself on the sigils. And clearly I need that from time to time when I can't even think of, you know, Donald Noy's name. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? I forgot Lencel a few weeks ago too. It's like, I know who it is. The name is just slipped. That's why I'm doing a reread right now to get myself shake off the rust, the rusty flowers. Yeah, yeah. Thanks as well to Joey, Jesse, and Bran for helping us with our intro. Not helping us, doing our intros, our songs. And Michael Klarfeld is included in that when we discuss the video stuff. We have had a variety of intros over the years that we use for different structured episodes, depending on the topic and style. So we have had a lot of great help from our friends on that, and we appreciate that. We will see you all next week for more. And you know what to do in the meantime. Valar reads.